Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Hi everybody, welcome tonight to the 28th share that we're doing here tonight with Rabbi Tzvi Block Mamudim. Thank you for coming. Um, before we start, um, again, I want everybody to know this is an open platform, so please be careful You know, when we ask questions. Um, just remember, not everybody's 613, and just keep that in mind. Another warning I just want to tell everybody before we come tonight is a very mature topic. Uh, we're going to have a very open conversation, Rabbi Glock. Is that okay? Can we be open tonight? Can we make it real? I don't plan any other way. Okay, so, so everybody should please be aware of that. So I don't want to have the words, wah, wah. This is a warning. It's a mature program. If you're mature, be on. If not, you shouldn't be on. Um, I first want to start off with thanking everybody for, you know, I getting so much amazing feedback. I'll get into that soon. Uh, we have a lot of people that come on every week and they post for us. They put on the WhatsApp. They tell their friends about it. And more and more people are knowing about it and getting to know the program. And it's really growing. I want to first say thank you to everybody who comes on every week, people that let people know about it. It's just an unbelievable chesed to help people. And just by telling people and posting it, it's a, it's a tremendous thing. And we really want people to know about it and to get to know it. It's, just, it's a tremendous chesed for so many people. I want to start off again first thanking our advertising sponsors who every week push us on their platforms, the Lakewood Scoop, every week promoting us here in Lakewood, New Jersey. I want to thank Rabbi and Yaniv for bringing tremendous energy into our program and promoting on all the Chazak platforms. Um, everybody can go to chazak.org, check out all the programs they have. They're amazing people. And a special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer from JCN Jewish Content Network, who does all our digital marketing, and I think they do a pretty good job, because uh, you'll see a lot of people will be here soon. So I appreciate that. Um, next Sunday is a little change of venue. Next Sunday, actually, we're going to have Rabbi Manus Friedman. Uh, we're going to be discussing an uh, interesting topic about uh, the comedy of marriage, some tips and shalom bias, and some different outlooks in the, in, and, and ideas. And following that, we're going to have Rabbi Waiwa Jacobson. And I just spent the whole Shabbos with Rabbi Waiwa, so we'll talk about that soon. And let's open up with Coach Menachem and then give it back to me. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem. Which number is this? Number 28? Number 28. Can I Anyways, before we start, the truth is I haven't really landed from the Shabbaton that we went together by Kesha Nafshi, which is really, really unbelievable. Um, there are no words to describe. We were there for many hours and I was really blown away um, of the all different types of people. And basically, everybody's working on themselves to do the right thing. And uh, let me tell you, it, I don't know how they do it. And it really can be sometimes murder to really work on yourself, to turn yourself around, do crazy, crazy things that you would never believe you have to. Talking from stories of pain, listening to the stories, to stories of hope. And uh, like Rabbi Glazer mentioned this week, um, if you let yourself cry, then you'll be able to laugh. You, you know, if you don't suppress the emotions to be able to come out and be real. And I wanna thank all of you, the listeners. I got to see you um, um, live, I got to see you and thank you very much for coming over, giving the feedback, and mamas from all over the world. Ayit uh, from Yishalayim tells me he gets up five o'clock in the morning to watch the show, which is really, really impressing. Anyways, tonight's topic 
is a sensitive topic and it's about abuse and addiction, what to do and what we need to know. And it's not always so easy to hear. And we are used to, I guess, uh, in many places not to talk about it and uh, hope for the best. But with a little bit of awareness, we could prevent and and for those who need the help should be able to get their help. Now, the truth is with any abuse, there's always that emotional element that can't be seen. You can always shove it over the rug, under the rug. And if somebody wants to share, you say, nah, it's not that bad. It's not something that you could see. And those who suffer, especially if you push them away and you don't accept or listen to what they're saying, there's nowhere, nowhere to go. And I want you to imagine using a funnel. If you want to pour in a lot of water from all the sides, using a funnel so it goes in one place. I think Tzvi Glock's desk is that place where all these stories come funneling in all the way down to his desk and where he sits, this is what he sees. And I want to thank you, Tzvi, to be with us tonight. Give us a little bit of awareness. Hopefully with that, we can prevent. And for those who need the help, should be able to get the help. And in Mitzvah Shem, we should have a lot of atzlocha to get the right message out. Thank you, Coach Menachem, for opening up. Again, before we start, just want to talk for a minute. Um, tonight's show was sponsored anonymously by Lakewood Friends of Tzvi in honor of all that he does for Klai Yisrael. When I, when I, I just want to tell people when I started uh, posting that I'm going to have Tzvi Glock on my program, I got so many text messages and people told me he's an unbelievable person. People texted me, he saved my child's life. I got some text messages like that. And people were just so the courage that people have for him. We're not trying to we're not trying to you know pump up your ego, but it is what it is. I gotta say the truth. Let's get real. So I just I gotta be real about it. So I was calling him all the time. Sviglock, he's a rabbi, he has smichas, everybody should know that. He's not just some guy on the street, he's a very fashion guy. And we spend a lot of time talking. And I want to talk a little bit more what Menachem spoke about. Um, before before um, this weekend, I went, I spent time with a bunch of parents that don't have from, from children, me and Menachem, and um, I wasn't so familiar with this whole addiction problem, abuse problem. I know about it. I'm an open-minded guy. I knew one guy here, one guy there. I had a friend in Yeshiva that, that was nifter from overdosing. These things happen, um, but they were very far and few apart. Uh, the Shabbos, I spent a, a weekend with a few hundred people um, from all walks of life. We're talking about from Lakewood, Bar Park, Flatbush, Muncie, Crown Heights, Williamsburg, and yes, even Krios Yoel. That, that the stories they told me about the different abuse. And again, there's an open program. I'm letting you know tonight it's a mature audience. We're talking about sexual abuse. We're talking about physical abuse. We are talking about drinking and addictions. And I wasn't going to be so strong. I just wanted to bring out an awareness. But after this weekend, I feel that Hashem put me there this weekend to see how these people's lives were turned upside down from, 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 from such horrible things that happened to them. And it was so many hundreds of people, not the, the few people that we know. So people that are here, are familiar and have been through some situations themselves with their children. They, they, they know what I'm talking about. And from all those people that are like me and they think it's a, a far-fetched concept, um, no, it's really not. And it's really sad and it's really scary. And I, I think that the, the factor of Tzvi is coming on tonight. I really want him to give us the chizik to understand what we're dealing with. Um, if you don't know what it's about, then you got to wake up and smell the reality. It's really strong. It's really out there. And so if anything, it's getting really worse right now. The laws are changing in New Jersey. Marijuana is becoming legal and a lot of things are changing and knowledge is power. And we have to know what we're dealing with to close our eyes and to live in this la-la land. It's all cute and dandy if you're lucky that none of your kids or nobody you know falls into it. 
but after the Shabbos and seeing what's going on, I, I just want to say one last thing to you. I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not taking over the show. It's not my show, it's yours. I'm just letting you know. One kid got up this, this much of Shabbos from the age of 11 years old till 23 years old. He did every type of drug. He did every type of drinking from cocaine to meth to he tried to overdose on Valium. 11 years, his parents put into him probably millions of dollars of rehabs and therapies and everything. And, and it was just beautiful to see that now Baruch Hashem, he's really coming out of it. And there was another person I spoke there that he came out of it. And there was another person there that, that was a, a drunk for, he was actually a Lakewood child from the age of 12 years old till 30. And he said, he even remembers his, he was so drunk, he got married and his kid was so drunk, he went out and he forgot about his kid. His kid was working on Kfish Achad in Israel, on Kfish Achad on the highway. So just a lot of this awareness that happened over the weekend and Reb Tzuyi, I'm really happy here. And uh, the floor is yours. You're muted. So, oh, no, I'm not muted. First of all, thank you very much. And uh, when I'm ready for a hospital, I'll just have you write it. I'm ready. So I do appreciate that. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I get this question a lot. Like, why, why do you continuously go on to these shows and talk? And I always say, I don't care if there's one person in the audience or if there's a thousand people. If it can help even one person, it was well worth it. Um, you said it very eloquently. You, uh, you and Coach Menachem got to spend Shabbos, what we like to call, in the trenches. Um, the reality is the world we're living in today is not the world that a lot of us grew up in, or as we can say, it is not the word that a lot of us realized we were growing up in. And it's getting more and more complicated and more and more difficult. So no matter how you slice it, our job is to do what we can to help make the world a better place, one person at a time, one life at a time. And by doing that, you know, it's not only ourselves, but it's future generations. And that's really, really important. So I have to say that I am honored that you uh, asked me, you know, to uh, join. And uh, I'm here. And like you said, it's my show. I'm your guest. I'm here for you. So, you know, I have no problem. We can go straight into questions. We can, whatever you want me to do, I'm very open and free to do whatever you suggest. I'm here. What do you, how do you, you want me to do this? Give us first Hagdama, first uh... So tell just me what set the table about addiction or al alcohol. Okay, I'll set. Give no us problem. a little bit of information. Not a problem. So, uh, for those that do or don't know, I've been in this field for about 21 years. Um, I will say that 15 years ago, if somebody would have told me I would have gotten a call about a 14-year-old using heroin, I would have said that they were falling off their mind. And the worst drug that we heard of at that point that a teenager was marijuana, maybe 17, 18 year old were starting with some pills, maybe. What we're seeing today are things that we have never seen before. Alcoholism is something that has, even pre-COVID, we noticed a major increase. And then, you know, throughout the last eight, nine months, it's gotten progressively worse, especially, especially a lot of parents you know, daytime that have started, you know, what they like to call daytime alcoholics, for lack of a better term. You know, abuse is something that has been plaguing every community. You know, I, I take it very personal when people try to pick a certain community. It's, it's every community. It's everywhere. It's how we address it that sets us apart for many, many years. And I use the following example. 40 years ago, it wasn't uncommon for parents to have a child born with a, you know, developmental disability or medical disability. And 
<clears throat> excuse me, try to find a place for that child to live other than being at home. And then it got destigmatized. Many, many years ago, people had a family member that was sick with the machla. You couldn't say the word that starts with the letter C. You couldn't say the word cancer. Got destigmatized. Then there was the issue, and I happen to hate this term, and you'll hear me say it a few times tonight. I hate this term, but it's the term that's used of what they call teens at risk, which I hate the term because we're all at risk. What makes one person at risk more than another? I have no idea. But from a terminology standpoint, there was a uh, cover article on the Jewish Observer that shattered that to a tremendous extent. I, I believe it was Yankee Horowitz that actually wrote that article. I believe, I just have to, I don't like to quote things if I don't remember 100%. <clears throat> and, you know, the same thing dealing with addiction. I mean, over the last few years, we have certainly, certainly seen, you know, that it's becoming more open to talk about addiction. It's becoming more open to talk about abuse. But as far as we've come in the last few years, we are still light years behind where we need to be. And <clears throat> the only real way to make change is for everybody to step up and say, we're not going to take this anymore. We're going to accept this as a reality that's going on in our community. And we're going to accept that no one's immune. And there's a few things I'll share with you tonight, you know, that are going to be interesting. Um, but we'll get to that, you know, during the segment. But the main goal is that everybody has to go away, at least my hope, is we go away with the message of hope and of realizing that there is help available and that we shouldn't be hopeless. At the end of the day, there are people out there that can assist. There are solutions. We have to find them. We have to not be embarrassed to want to find them. That's extremely important. And we have to be open to accept the realities of the world we're living in. And if we can accept those realities, then it makes it much easier to try to actually get the help that people need. This, you know, sweeping under the rug and keeping things hidden and trying to, uh, you know, cover things up, those days are long gone. Because unfortunately, the alternative, and I mean, there's a article that was published by a good friend of mine, Dr. David Brosmerin. Uh, he cited, you know, I think, he, you, wasn't he on the show by you guys? Yeah. Oh, I, I thought so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so he could have spoken about a lot of topics, but he, uh, he wrote an article that was published a few years ago, a research study rather. Um, and uh, I think Dr. Pelkowitz was involved with him on it. I know that I had gone over it at that point and he had quoted, you know, and, and he had mentioned a few times that people talk about, you know, the after effects of whether it's abuse and abuse is all forms. You know, I'm not one of those people that says every person with a problem was abused or was, you know, sexually abused or had this issue or that issue. None of us are in a VM and none of us know what really happens. We know for sure one thing, people have a problem, we got to find them help. But he did, he did bring some very, very clear scientific data of issues that are not addressed end up becoming much, much bigger, much, much quicker. So the hope that I have and why I am all for as much awareness as possible, because I think that's really the key, is to let people know that it's extremely important that you cannot be embarrassed. You have to be able to reach out for help. Um, and, you know, there are, there is hope and awareness is the key. Prevention is the key. You know, we want to get people before they have to end up at Shabbatonim, like what the, you know, Coach Menachem and Usher were at the Shabbos. We want to make sure that prevention is implemented in a much healthier way. 
we want to avoid the issues before they become issues, not afterwards. Obviously, we have to deal with both, uh, but it's important to understand it. And, you know, people, they don't always get it. So I, I'll, I'll give you like just a couple of examples. You know, I, I, I was in Israel a few years ago for circus and, and I'll never forget, you know, so some meals we had Bacharim over and some meals we had seminary students over. And I'll never forget that the, a few of the Bacharim brought over some wine. And they were talking about this wine bottle, the year, the vintage, the, 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 the type of grape. Like, first of all, they had no idea what they were talking about, but they really made it sound good. But the mere fact that they felt the need to personify this alcohol and make it like the highlight of their meal. And I actually wrote an article right afterwards that was published. And, and I got a lot of flack for it, as I do for a lot of things I do. And I am sure, by the way, Coach Menachem, I apologize in advance but I'm sure you're going to get flack after tonight as well. And if you don't, then I didn't do my job. So I'll say that straight. Exactly. Um, but I wrote an article because I was so taken aback. And then I started going to friends' houses and I started noticing something. And just like an interesting tip that I like to just share. How many people do we know that have a, a liquor cabinet in their house or wine in their, you know, in their dining room or living room? Kids come home from yeshiva. What's the first thing they see? The alcohol, Right. Parent comes home from a trip. I just got this bottle, duty-free. Well, not now, the last few months, but, you know, pre-COVID. And it's personified. In, in my house, I'm not going to lie, we do have alcohol in my house. My liquor cabinet does not have, is not see-through. There's things blocking the windows. I want to make a l'chaim. You open the cabinet. You take out the bottle. You pour one glass, put it back in. You close it. You don't turn the alcohol into the highlight of the meal. You don't make it the topic of discussion because when you do, that's what your children see. And we have to all remember as parents, and I speak to myself as well, our children learn from our actions. That is a fact. And if we're going to personify things, specifically alcohol, because that's what we're starting with here, then at the end of the day, that's what they are going to focus on. And then when they're in yeshiva, they're going to be talking about the 30-year-old bottle of this scotch and the this and the that and all these other special things. And now what? And the amount of people that we're dealing with struggling with alcoholism, and I'm talking about young married couples, husbands and wives both, by the way, it's another th phenomenon. You know, when I was first started dealing with this years ago, everybody always assumed that this was, you know, a male issue. It was more, you know, boys more than girls. It's pretty much equal across the board today. And not just by teenagers, by married couples too. People in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s. I mean, the stats of what we're seeing is just literally off the charts. You can talk about the opioid epidemic. Anyone that thinks that any community is immune to it, you know, is living in a dream world. Now, yes, there are multiple reasons why people can turn to addiction. And there's some science that will state that some of it will come from how, you know, generally uh, it could be something that, you know, it could be a chemical imbalance. Somebody could be born with it. It could be genetics. There's a lot of different things could be from a car accident, somebody was starting to take painkillers and then got hooked onto it. It could be something that started off smaller to escape some sort of pain and then it, you know, grew bigger. But I got to tell you, the people that we're dealing with that are addicted to opioids that we have to deal with, whether it's with detox, rehab, treatment, all these other things, no matter how you slice it, um, I, I, you know, I have people that are balabatim, rabbonim of shuls, Rosh Yeshiva. So I had a story a few years ago. Rosh Yeshiva needed to go to rehab. It was Nisim Venaflois that the rehab 
that he needed to go to, we were able to get him in right before the summer. So the yeshiva thought that he wasn't, because the stigma is so strong that how can I do this? Now, I'm not judging Woody, whether we should have gone in the middle of the month. I found out about it a week before this month ended, so it was perfect. But this is not something that people assume the addict is the guy standing on the street corner holding up the sign that says, you know, uh, vet, I need a dollar, you know, or something. It, it could be a person next door, someone in our family, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors in shul, someone that we could look up to. And it doesn't make a person a bad person. The number one thing that I like to say is addiction is a disease, whether it's alcohol, substance abuse, whether it's a process addiction. It is a disease. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be an addict. doesn't happen. And the same way when somebody has diabetes, we make sure to get them treatment. Somebody has a heart condition, we get them treatment. When somebody has an addiction, we have to get them treatment. And that's what it boils down to. If we can accept the fact that this is a disease, it's an illness, and it is something that unfortunately happens, you know, everywhere. All walks of life, Hasidim, Litfish, Misnagat, from not from modern, you name it, men, women, older, younger, grandparents, teenagers, doesn't make a difference. Then we're able to try to get people the proper help. And on the abuse side of things, I mean, you know, it, it speaks, you know, unfortunately, it speaks volumes. And we all, unfortunately, you know, in Bayesha, in Bayesha, we've all know someone or have heard of someone. And again, you guys were very surprised this past Shabbos. I'm, Shocked that, you know, you were so honest about how surprised you were. I would, and I'm not saying this to make fun. I'm saying in reality, but unfortunately, no matter how you slice it, um, abuse destroys. It's murder. People's lives get destroyed. Mendy Klein's said this by a Tom Sora convention many, many years ago. And he said that when you kill a child, they're dead. When you abuse a child, they wake up every day and they're dead again and they're dead again, and they're dead again. And the worst part about it is what we call secondary trauma, which is if somebody, unfortunately, Leilenu was a victim of abuse and they didn't get the help that they needed. And then when they finally reach out, instead of getting them the help that they need, we, you know, very often people will say, oh, don't say anything, keep it quiet, don't do anything. And that ends up causing so much more pain and sar even more so than the original abuse, according to many clinicians. And that's called secondary trauma. We have to make sure that if people are reaching out for help, we have to <clears throat> accept that they are asking for this and do what we can to help them. And that's what's extremely important. Ignoring these things does not make it go away. So we have to accept that this is the world we live in. And I'm not saying that I'm happy that it's the world we live in, but this is the world we live in. And based on that, we have to do our part whether it's awareness, whether it's education, <clears throat> whether it's accepting, whether it's knowing how to speak to our children. You know, I mean, people always say to me, well, you know, I don't want to discuss this with my children because if I discuss it with them, then I'm going to bring up the topic. So first thing is we all know, you don't want your kid to learn something on the bus or in camp or in school that they didn't learn from you. But my other answer to that is always, let me ask you a question. Did you teach your kids to look both ways before crossing the street? Or did you say, no, I don't want to teach them that because maybe if I teach them, they might jump out between two cars to test it out and see if that's true. Obviously, we teach our kids to look both ways. We teach our kids how to swim. We do everything that we need to do to teach them. Teaching them about their own safety is just as important. And these are conversations when we 
and you know, one of the things that um, we did the event in 2016, I'll never forget in Lake Terrasol, um, there was a, an abuse awareness evening that we had. And uh, one of the ideas that was brought up, and again, this is for a mature audience. So I'm gonna just as a reminder, I said, I'll remind these things. So I'm gonna remind it is the question came up is how do I teach my children how to speak about their body parts? And I said, what's the issue? Like the body parts have names, teach them the names to their body parts. And someone goes, I said, let me tell you something. Here's how this works. When you teach your child, because he used the example of a front tushy and a back tushy. This was the example that the person used. I said, so let me ask you a question. Some chas a kid comes home and he says, you know, uh, so-and-so uh, went and touched my, my tushy. You might assume that someone gave him a slap on the, you know, meanwhile, it might've been actual abuse, right? You don't know because you're scared to use the actual names of body parts. And I'll never forget when Shmuel Kamenetsky, Stark, first reviewed one of the safety programs um, that Debbie Fox put out, Safety Kid. And I remember he was watching the video and she kept going back and forward a few times at one piece. And Shmuel's like, why are you, why do you keep rewinding and going forward? And she's like, I want to make sure that we can use the verbiage that we're using as we're referring to the male genitalia. And he says, what else should you be calling it? So again, these are like those types of things where if we don't teach our kids properly and we don't make them comfortable with things, then we automatically from a young age make it unacceptable. And if we're starting off making it unacceptable, they won't feel comfortable to come to us if there's a problem. And the number one thing as parents is we want our children to feel comfortable to come to us if there's a problem. That, that's the number one thing. I have to just take a minute over here because I see that my shvigar just joined. So thank you. Um, now I really have to behave. Oh, yeah, am I in trouble? <laughs> anyway, um, but I, I, I'm going to remind this again that children that are abused are murdered. That's what it boils down to. So we need to do our part to make sure that they don't have to live a life of death for their entire life and give them the chance to be able to uh, thrive and survive. Um, I'm going to ask a question here because it's very difficult for me to like be doing, I mean, I guess, yes, I have ADHD and I'm more than, uh, you know, not embarrassed about it, but I, I see that a lot of people are sending me private messages, but we also have a system where, yeah, so, so is that fine? Is that, you want me to keep an eye on those messages? And keep an eye on it. We'll try to cover it, but we have tons of material. A lot of people want to ask live questions and anybody who has questions, text it to Usher Parnas to me because it's very hard because there's a lot of topics we're trying to cover tonight. Obviously, you know, this is, we're trying to get as much material out of Rabbi Glock as possible. So questions all over the place, you know, let me try to moderate it. But Rabbi Glock, let's, let's get into it. Are you ready? I don't have a choice. I'm here and you're here. Let's go. All right. Should we make a look high first? Let's start. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this guy. Okay. Let's start with, the, let's start with the poll. So you can take a one minute break. Okay. Again, guys, it's a mature audience, which is a serious topics. Are you here? Feel comfortable. First question. Are you aware of the topic of abuse in the communities? Three possible answers. Yes, no, I don't feel comfortable knowing. I'd rather not know. Please choose any of them. It's anonymous, nobody knows. Uh, second question is, in what area do you have a question you'd like to hear more about? Alcohol, drugs, emotional abuse, physical abuse, or sexual abuse? Please choose one of those options. Again, we don't see the answers. We see the, me, uh, three, me and you see the answers, but they, they don't see it yet. I, I, I don't, where do I see it? I don't know what I'm looking at here. Should be on your main screen. Look at the main screen. Let's go, everybody. Let's get some answers. I'll share with you in a minute. If you don't see it, I'll okay. share with you. Right. 
That's fine. You ready? Five, four, three. Here we go. I'm going to share the results. So you can see now? Um, Are you aware of the topic of the abuse in our community? Oh, it's hiding behind the camera here. Okay. Yeah, let's not hide it. No, no, I couldn't Eight. see the. It's very shocking to see the numbers, actually. I'm a little bit shocked over here. 84% of the people are aware of, of, of the topic of abuse in the community. So it seems like most people are pretty knowledgeable, which is great. We're not dealing with people that are like shocked by this. 14% they say no, they're not aware of any abuse in the community, and 2% don't feel comfortable. Second question What area do you have a question you'd like to hear more about? 11% is alcohol, 12% is drugs. The winner by far is emotional abuse, 39%. Physical abuse is 2%. And I would say tied for first place is sexual abuse, 37%. Okay. So let's get into it. Um, let's start a little bit with some questions I have. A lot of people are texting me. Please, will you text me? We're going to try to get to them. Obviously, the live questions will go first. You ask me a live question. It's, you know, it's it's great. And I'm, I'm, then that's what we want. That's what Sri wants and I want. Um, it could be for yourself if you want to be open. You know, Matthew wants that. And um, feel comfortable. If it's not, you could, you could turn off your camera or change it. But live questions are going to go before the type questions. But let's start off with alcohol. Uh, so the first question, my son is 40 years old. I don't let him drink even on travel. So I'm like one of those parents that are very tough on him. Is that being too hard on him? So again, I mean, the answer is no, it's not being too hard on him, but it's also a question of explaining as to why. I always say education is the key. You know, we have to remember children are our children, not our peers. And we have to keep that in mind and treat them as such. But at the same time, we have to also respect the fact that, you know, they are going to have questions. So when a child who's young wants to drink, it's not just saying, no, it's only for adults. First of all, it depends on how you drink is going to decide how your child's going to want to drink. Keep that in mind. And the other thing that's more important is also when you explain why they can't, I, you know, I always say, go to drugabuse.gov, print out the effects of what alcohol and drugs has on the human brain, on brain development. Depending on 14 year old is old enough to have a discussion with. You can have a conversation and say, hey, these are the issues. This is how it's going to affect your growth. I don't want this to be an issue. And uh, therefore, no, you cannot drink. Now, the father, the father could because he's older. Again, the question is as follows. A, it all depends on how the father drinks, which is going to dictate of how the child's going to want to drink. The children see that their father's a lush or their mother's a lush. They're going to for sure want to drink. I can tell you that off the bat without a doubt. But if they see that the person's responsible and is taking out to make a l'chaim, right? And putting the bottle back away. And it's something that they're doing not, you know, in a crazy manner. And then he says, you know, Tati, I would like some. Listen, let me talk to you, Tzadikal. Here's the situation. This is something that is meant for adults. It's meant for grownups. And let me explain that this is, it has an effect on the human body. It has effect on the growth of the brain development. It has effect on the liver. Go through some of the actual realities, which you can all pull up the data. It's all there. And be able to explain that in a way where they can understand it. Now, obviously, no, you can't expect a child to uh, accept that if he sees the parent, you know, doing it another way. I mean, I just said the story not too long ago. There was an eight-year-old that went to a neighbor for a Shabbos. And by dessert, the, the, the neighbor's wife brought out brownies. Brownies, what's wrong with brownies? And this eight-year-old looks at this neighbor and the mother and says, are those the ones that I'm allowed to eat or not allowed to eat? Now, let me ask you a question. What chance does that eight-year-old have? Just tell me off the bat. Let's do a study. I'll do another a poll. 
What chance does that age you? I can tell you none. Because if they're asking that question, that means off the bat, they know that there's the brownies I could eat, I can't eat. What does that mean? Obviously it means it's lace brownies, marijuana or other substances. So again, the answer is it, children should not be drinking alcohol, period, end of story. But it has to be explained to them. And if they see that their parents are doing it, you can't expect them not to either. Sounds like this child had a conversation with their parents and now they know there are some brownies they could have and some brownies they can't. Um, the conversation, I'm just, this I'm conversation, trying to bring up the conversation could bring that the child would want to, hey, let me try this out. So I will tell you as follows, this specific conversation I ended up having with those parents and uh, it did not end as well as they would have liked. Um, and the child did not have it in a conversational format. It was very black and white where no understanding. And for an eight-year-old, there's no, there's no good reason for an eight-year-old to have to ever ask that question. Parents should not be having those types of brownies in front of their eight-year-old. I want to ask a follow-up on that because a lot of people are texting me this. That's cute. So you could do your part and everybody will do their part. They'll be mocked. They won't put out the drinks. They won't make it secondary. The bottom line is in the world that we live in, that I live in, you go to every single Kiddush, there's thousand dollars of booze. Probably the most expensive thing by every Kiddush is the booze. Every Purim, everybody's house, you go to Shabbos. So you could do your part. You could show it. it's not the most important thing and you could show your, but the bottom line, it's all over the place. How do you, and the kid is getting bigger, what best advice can you give a parent to explain the kids how to deal with that? In a perfect world, you want my real answer? The advice is stop having thousands of dollars of booze by a Kiddush. It's completely unnecessary. The the amount of, no, but, but, but one second, but that is my real answer. In other words, my real answer is we, we, we claim we want better for our children, but the fact is we're not practicing what we preach. So my real answer is stop it. Cut it out. You know that alcoholism is killing people in our community. I will say, you know, the one good thing about COVID, nobody died of overdose, alcohol poisoning, car accidents related to alcohol or suicides in the last eight months because everybody died from COVID. Because before that, it would have been aneurysms. My real answer is cut the garbage out. Enough is enough. Because the reality is you can't teach that to a child. You can't tell a 14-year-old, no, this is not acceptable for you. But yes, when I go to so-and-so's house or this and this you know, person is making a kiddish, the, the amount of booze on that table is more than three months of my mortgage combined. It, you can't teach that because this whole concept of do as I say, not as I do, is not something that they're going to learn from. That's just the reality. Now, sometimes you have no choice and say, listen, this is not something that's good. And be honest and be open and say, you know, listen, this is not something that we are fans of, not something we're proud of. Yes, there are people that do like to spend a lot of money on alcohol for Kedeshim. And it's just not something that I believe in. And I don't want to raise you in that way. And have that as a straight conversation. You know, you say straight talk. I say the same thing. Straight talk. Speak to kids straight. That is always, always something that I find that will be much more beneficial in the big, in the big picture. I hear that. Uh, people are texting me. I'm just, I'm just going with the flow. That's coming in. I'm being honest so, with you. People are texting me now. They find it to be the, some of the biggest problems is that they see that the adults, the children are seeing when you go to school, you go to different places, the adults are really hitting that bottle hard, whether it's during middle, you know, you know, we look, we understand that as adults, you know, they're having obviously stress and they're, you know, they're going through hard times. And that's why you see in the middle of Kriya Satoya, they're going to the back and then they're hitting that, that $200 bottle. 
But the kids want to, you know, what are you supposed to do when you see this all over? And it's not just one shul. This is a pretty common problem, right? I think we made a music video about that. I've seen that before. So, again, in the perfect world, nobody drinks and we close all alcohol stores. But in the real world that we live in, how do we really deal with that? So, again, yes, we did do a video about it. And, you know, the joke I tell people is all of my friends didn't talk to me for the next six months. My wife's friends all thanked me. Um, so that's the joke I make about that video. Um, but the reality is, is that it is a problem. And this is why we have to focus on the adults more than the children. And I keep saying this at every speech that I give. On this one topic of adults drinking and drinking out of control, let's focus on the adults. Let's get the adults to be educated that they should understand the ramifications of their actions. Because unfortunately, that is who the children are going to follow. They are going to follow the adults. And that is extremely important for them to understand that. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's also on the achrayas of the rabbanim of the shuls. You know, I, I used to ask this as a joke. I said, you know, what's the biggest issue with the Kiddush Club, right? What's the biggest issue? Is the biggest issue the alcohol? So it becomes an argumentative debate. I said, you know, there's also another issue with the Kiddush Club people forget about. And that is you're teaching your child not to be machshev, either Kriya Tayro, the Haftayro, or the rough speech. Either way, you're teaching your child that there is a certain part of davening or the Tyra that means nothing to you. So let's even assume that you want, you know, so one rough said to me, okay, no problem. I'm going to make a break in between laning and Naftarah for Kiddush Club. So they won't miss anything. Okay, that wasn't really the, the best of solutions, but I heard where he's coming from. But at the end of the day, no matter how you slice it, it's imperative upon us, the adults, to have to understand the reality that what we do is what our children are going to learn. Now, I'm going to mention this also because I got this, um, you know, in, in earlier on that right now we have to also understand, you know, it's so interesting. And I, and I found this fascinating how, you know, we talk about vital services and vital stores and organizations that, uh, you know, things that need to be open. And of course, what was the number one store that never closed throughout the entire pandemic? Liquor stores. What does that tell you? The amount of daytime alcoholism that we've been dealing with in our community, I'm talking about regular, normal, balabatasha, husbands, wives, you name it, okay, has jumped up. The actual substance abuse rates, people that have been relapsing, that were sober for so long, doing so well. You know, as, yeah? Can you, can you share some numbers with us? Because we don't think this is really such real problems. Maybe you're exacerbating all these numbers. So uh, the answer is I, I could definitely share numbers with you. I mean, I don't want to, you know, create any issues in any one kahila over another, but you want me to give you Amudim numbers? You want me to give you specific community? You want me to break it down by a zip code? You tell me how granular you want me to get. You tell me in 2020, 19, how many calls Amudim got? In 2020, how many calls Amudim got? Okay, one second. Cases, not calls, not calls. Cases, how many cases, open cases? you're dealing with. So we right now have an active caseload of 3,424 active cases. We were just below 2,600 in all of 2019. Can you explain me what, 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 what means a case? That means you got a phone call that- uh, No, not so if somebody is just, no, if somebody's calling us up, it doesn't become a case. A case by us is someone that's calling up going under comprehensive case management, where we are actually going to try to help and assist and get them proper therapy, rehab, treatment, inpatient, outpatient, family, education, or things of that nature. 
So it, just somebody calling up does not generate a case. Even people that are cases probably don't actually generate cases because we're so overwhelmed with the you know, influx of uh, caseload as a result of this. Um, but if you want to pick any specific target area, I mean, I can... What, what, what in 2020 was the number one broken down by category? What was the most... Can you go from the highest to the lowest? Like, what's the most cases we're talking about? So the, the, the answer is I could, but you're going to have to just bear with me one second because while I'm on uh, Zoom, my computer is a drop slower than I would like it to be. And I wish I would have known that this was uh, it's something that you would have asked. I would have opened this. Uh, the, reason why, the reason why I'm asking this question, because some people I, I, I see and texting, people like sometimes think this is a very not so common and not so, you know, onesies and twosies. Okay, no problem. I, I we, can we move further? We'll get back to it. Just, I, I think it'll be interesting to see more. Okay. Okay, let's, let's move on to the next question. I'm pulling. I'm, I'm pulling up all those no stats. But now I'm going to do a live question. Are you ready? Okay, I got my stats here. One second. Okay, you ready? The live question. Yeah. You want the live question first or the stats first? The stats. Let's go to live questions so people can get an idea. Go for it. Oh, what's that? Which one? Stats or live questions? Let's do stats quick. Let's okay. Very good. Um, so I'll tell you as follows. Sexual abuse, we saw an increase by 79% compared to last year, year over year. How many cases? Uh, you want the, uh, you first wanted percentage. I'll give you case numbers in a second. Let's do one thing at a time because I'm looking at three different screens to give you these answers, okay? Anxiety and depression was up by 90%. Domestic violence, 46%. Suicidal ideation, 38%. Mental health in general, 74%. PTSD, 44%. Eating disorders, 43%. Sex addiction, 40%. Alcohol and substance abuse, 42%. So that's comparative to the previous year. Um, actual numbers you want. Hold on a second. Uh, oh, no, I want to buy stock. So uh, sexual abuse, uh, the highest number to sexual abuse is 2,328 of our active cases this year were primarily sexual abuse. Um, street drug addiction was 944, alcohol addiction was 648, uh, prescription drug addiction was 644, and then it goes down to anxiety, depression, you know, child abuse, spousal abuse was uh, 379. So the numbers right, keep on. Okay, first last question, let's go. You're on. Thank you so much, Tzvi. We were big fans of what you do and much continued Hatzlach on your Abayda Sakhaydash. Um, this is a question as an adult sibling of somebody who's a teenager who seems to be um, struggling with alcohol, alcoholism right now. And obviously as an adult sibling, we don't have control. We don't make the decisions in the house. Um, what can we do just to support so the first thing I say is, number one, always show the sibling that you love him or her and care for him or her. And if there's anything that he or she needs, they can always feel comfortable to come to you. Number two is that while very often the person who needs the help, especially with alcohol or substance abuse, is not ready to actually get the help, it is highly encouraged for the loved ones, for those around the person to join an Al-Anon meeting. You and your sibling should go even though it's not the spouse of, but it's other affected individuals. So you'll hear from others who are in the same situation, who have a loved one that is also struggling and be able to get some of the component from them 
and be able to use that and hopefully help your sibling get the help that your sibling needs. So the number one thing is never close the door on the sibling. They should always know there's someplace for them to go. And the second thing is get the tools that you and your siblings can use. And obviously, if there are a way to get the parents involved, I noticed that you didn't mention them in the question, but I'll say that as well. Very often, you know, creating a wholesome environment, taking a 30,000 foot view, putting together a solid support structure for the person who needs help is going to be the key. So if that means that we have to get the parents or we have to get the siblings or we have to get other affected individuals to get a better understanding of the addiction, get them to go to Al-Anon meetings, let them meet other people who have been through this, that can be a, a certain way that can definitely help in any way that we can do. So I, I think that this is really, um, you know, something that, and again, there's plenty of whether it's organizations, private therapists or whatever to reach out to. I'm not a fan of the line that people often use that says, if the person doesn't want help, you can't help them. I don't like that line. The person doesn't want help, you help everybody around that person. And by helping everybody around that person, you can end up helping the person as well. Thank you, perfect. Are there Jewish um, Al-Anon meetings? So the answer is there are, um, and there are AA meetings, Al-Anon meetings, there's all different fellowship meetings, whether it's for gambling, sex addiction, alcohol, substance abuse, open fellowships in all communities. And they are all by definition anonymous. That's why it's called Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and there are plenty in every community. And there are also a lot of people who, you know, will call us up and say, can you find me, you know, an AA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting outside of the firm community or not where we are. And we'll try to help with that as well. But first of all, you can go onto the websites, you know, the actual Al-Anon website, you'll find it. And if not, reach out. There are plenty of meetings and somebody just texted me privately. Do we send to Al-Anon? I think I just answered that question. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're big fans of fellowships and of people getting support, um, you know, from, from peers. Peer-to-peer -peer support is a very strong thing, both for the person who is an addict, who needs to be in recovery, and for their loved ones. Okay, what, what is your advice for parents whose child just came home and told them that they were abused? So first of all, for the parent whose child told them, I start off by saying Ashrecha, because that means your child felt comfortable enough to tell you. So that's already a huge step in the right direction. Okay. Usually what happens, they come home and... Uh, Usually, I, I will tell you, more than 50% of our clients that are victims of childhood sexual abuse are above the age of 35. You want me to repeat that again? More than 50% of people that are reaching out for help that were victims of childhood sexual abuse are above the age of 35. Is that current or something that happened a while no, ago? No, they were victims of childhood sexual abuse. They, are, they, are, they were younger and now they are very often, they're married and have children that are around the same age that they were when they were abused. That might be a trigger or there might be something else that's coming out. But these are things, which is why I mentioned that it's murder. These people have been living with this for years. Um, but so let's preface number one to the parents who the child actually says it. God bless you, because that means you did something right, okay? Um, as far as how to react. So number one, don't lose your cool or go crazy. You got to remember that, like, we talk about everything in life, first impressions, 
you know, never, uh, you can never change a first impression. The same thing here. However, that first reaction is to the child is going to be the strongest feeling that child will have. So be proud of your child. Thank you for telling me. I love you. We're going to help you with this and then get professional help. That is the key. Parents should not try to become detectives, investigators, start asking questions. First of all, especially with children, the proper therapists know how to ask the questions in a healthy manner, not in an unhealthy manner. There's a difference between forensic line of questioning, open-ended questioning, closed-ended questioning, what will potentially get to the truth, won't get to the truth, or things of that, you know, that nature. So at the end of the day, however you react first is what the child will keep with them forever. That will be the deciding factor on proper treatment, being able to help. Now, the good thing is that when the children are younger, and again, it's, it's sad and nobody should ever be through this, but it's the reality of the world we live in, proper early intervention and early help usually has a much healthier outcome and they don't need therapy nearly as long as people that harbor it for a very, very long time. So number one, don't let <clears throat> your emotions get to you as a parent. And number two, get the proper direction. And I'm going to say this very, very carefully. Okay, not so carefully. Not from a Rav, not from an Askin, not from somebody who knows somebody, from a professional, a licensed mental health professional who is preferably trauma trained. Okay, that is the reality. Because unfortunately, the scary word that I hear all the time is, well, I can't go to a licensed professional because they're a mandated reporter. Okay, I hear that. Well, guess what? If they're a mandated reporter and they report and it turns out to not be true, so then, okay, maybe the child needs help from making up a story. If it turns out to yes be true, then so be it. Either which way, at what point do we juggle of what are we doing about our children's lives Versus not. How many more people do we have to bury that were victims of childhood sexual abuse, whether it's from suicides, overdoses, or, you know, God knows what else at young ages, and all because, oh, we didn't want to do anything because we were scared of A, B, C, and D. I got to say, I can tell you that at the end of the day, and I could say this and anybody can call me out on this. And I have close to 8,000 clients in six years that have gone through Amudim's doors and I have no problem sharing my data with anybody. I have nothing to hide. Those that got help early on from the proper professionals feared much better than those that didn't. Those that didn't suffered secondary trauma and had to live with it for a very, very long time. And unfortunately, very often the results were not good at all. And the amount of people that we're dealing with now and I'll just give you just one example, okay? Anybody, I don't know if we could do, can we do a poll uh, while we're on or you can't sure, set up a new poll? Sure, no, let's do it. Okay, so I'm going to send you the- Oh, the, so, oh, oh, the poll that we pre-sent or the poll that you want to send me? No, I want to send you a poll right now. Is, this, is that possible or it's not possible? Like you could send to me, I'll put it together while my assistant okay. on the other side will help me. And uh, we'll try to put it together. But we have that other poll, don't forget. I know. All right, all right, make sure you go. We have a bunch of live questions and we have a lot more questions to cover. So I'm letting you know, we have a lot going on over there. Okay, so let's go to the next question and okay. then I'll I'll get you the poll. Shmuley. Yeah, hi. Um, okay, so first of all, um, you mentioned earlier, Tzvi, 
um, about educating children about, you know, their private parts and, and, and like, you know, you don't cross the street before looking both ways, same thing with your, with your, you know, with your body. So just to say that there's a, um, first of all, just to say that there is a, a child's book that I think it's called Privacy, Please. I think that's what it's called. And it's really all about private space and there's, there's really good material out there. And we use it and the kids ask to read it sometimes, it's just a normal book in our house. So, you know, that's, that's a good tool. Um, but just to my question, um, I just don't know, like, you know, us growing up, you know, sexuality was such a taboo issue, you know, most from homes, I think, definitely in my home, like, you know, even had some, some part of a G, G, you know, PG movies in our house, but like anything sexual, we just fast forwarded and we didn't even use the word sexual, it's just like a non-issue, as if it doesn't exist. And, um, and, you know, and now I'm raising my own kids and I'm like, I don't know. You know, I do want to talk about sexuality at a certain point. I have a seven-year-old boy, a nine-year-old girl. Um, at, at what point? At what point do I bring it up? Like, like you mentioned, you don't want people to learn about it in the school bus. So, when do I mention it? How do I mention it? How much? What you know? What to say? I, I'm I'm just not sure where to go with it. Okay. So, uh, first of all, um, when I was growing up, the Holocaust was also a taboo subject, and my father took me when I was a, a child to uh, Europe. And I went to visit, I'll never forget, I went to visit Auschwitz, Majdanek, Treblinka. When I came back to Yeshiva, to Cheder, and I started talking about it, the principal called me in and said, we don't discuss this because this is not something that we discuss. Today, Baruch Hashem, they're talking about in schools. I'm not comparing one to the other. I'm saying is just because something was taboo 25, 30 years ago when I was 30, well, okay, I'm not so old, 35 years ago when I was in school doesn't mean that it should still be taboo today. Okay, that's number one. Um, number two is, as soon as your child knows the difference between a boy and a girl is when you start teaching them what they need to know, which basically means when they're four or five years old is when you start. Now, it doesn't mean that at four or five years old, you're going to start having this conversation with them, uh, you know, uh, about the birds and the bees. I'm not jumping there. There's age appropriate material. There's age appropriate books. You mentioned one. There's another amazing book called Uncle Willie Tickles which actually has nothing about sexuality in the book at all. It's really just about private space in a healthy manner. So the way I say it is, you teach them as soon as they're old enough to understand and not in a scary way. I always say, you gotta be smart. Every child needs to be taught you know, to their own level and you need to know your own children. That's, that's also very, very important. I don't know your children, I know my children. I hope I know my children. But at the end of the day, as soon as they're old enough to understand is when you start the discussion. And then once the discussion starts, then you're able to get to the next level. And, you know, if they start asking more questions, you have two choices. First of all, there's nothing wrong with telling a child in anything. I don't know the answer to this question. I will get back to you. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And then you find the right answer. You speak to a professional. You find something that you should read of how to talk to children. The, the, the worst thing to do is to make something up just to try to make a child, you know, as if they, you, you fulfilled their need. You don't have to know everything. I don't have the answer right now. I will try to find it for you. Um, so that's that. As soon as they're old enough to know the difference is the age that you start the conversation. Obviously, it has to be age appropriate. You got to be smart about it. Um, and I, I will tell you, the highest percentage of cases that we deal with are, you know, incest among siblings. It's the highest percentage of cases of people under the age of 15 that we're dealing with. 
whether it's older brothers, younger sisters, brothers, brothers, sisters, sisters, that's the highest percentage. Um, something that, you know, we need to understand. Now, if people would have these conversations, we wouldn't have all those cases, right? And we see the numbers, we see what's coming in, we know what we're seeing. So it's really important to have these conversations. Okay, let's go to the next live question, ready? A.B. Yes, Shalom Mubarak, how are you? Alaykum Shalom. Um, first of all, thank you, Rabasha and Menachem, for this amazing weekly share. People have come over to me regarding marijuana and have told me it's not that bad, it's not uh, addicting, it doesn't cause problems, you could drive, you can, it doesn't impair you. And it's not a gateway drug. How, how do you respond to something like that? So it's, it's a very tricky question, and I'll tell you yeah. why, okay? I'll tell you as follows. First of all, the issue with marijuana is really an age issue, because let's be realistic. It's going to be legal in all 50 states before we turn around, whether we want to or not. So we have to accept the reality that it's here, and it's here to stay, okay? Now, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's good, okay? So... Based on that, alcohol is not good, it's legal. So first of all, we have to understand that the human brain doesn't fully develop till the age of 25. Some scientists will say 23, everybody agrees before 23 for sure. So it's a conversation with our children about how, yes, this might be something that's legal, and especially for those that live in Colorado or in Lakewood now, can't have a plastic bag, but you can buy a joint. That's great, love it, gotta love you know the Jersey legislature. Um, that being said, have the discussion with them based on what the actual effects of marijuana are, number one. Number two is bring up statistics from the Colorado Department of Highway Safety that speaks about the huge increase of car accident-related deaths after marijuana became legal. Now, everybody would, used to say to me, oh, it's not a big deal. It makes you drive slower. It makes you think that everybody's a cop. It doesn't have the same effect of alcohol. All of that might be true, but the fact is accident rates went up and death rates went up. That's just a reality. So again, it's about having a honest and open conversation about what marijuana does as far as gateway. So it gets a little bit tricky because, you know, yes, I don't want this to come out sounding like anything, you know, wrong. The bulk of our calls of parents calling about my son's on marijuana, what rehab can I send him to is coming out of Lakewood. Now I got to say, marijuana is not a chemically dependent substance. So the concept of rehab for someone who's getting high all the time is not necessarily the same concept of someone who's using heroin, opioids, or other drugs. However, that being said, keep the following in mind. If somebody is using marijuana because they are trying to get high because they want to relax or enjoy themselves, and, and I love it when I do this in schools and the students say to me, well, my grandmother has medicinal marijuana, so I'm, it's okay because it's prescribed. I'm like, yeah, so go take your grandmother's gout, gout medication because it's prescribed too, but you don't do that either, right? But if somebody is smoking or eating edibles or all the other methods that there are today, vaping, which is a whole other discussion to have, then no matter how you slice it, if they're doing it just to relax, that's one thing. If somebody is using it as a mechanism to deal with something else, then it becomes like any other substance. And the marijuana may help take away the pain of whatever it is the person's trying to hide until the body builds up a tolerance to it. And then it's going to have to be something else. 
So is it a gateway drug? Isn't it a gateway drug? That is a very, very big debate amongst people much smarter than me. What I could say is for those that are using marijuana as a form of escape, for that category, Zecher, 100%, it is a gateway drug. Not even a question. For the people that are recreationally using it and above the age of when the brain development isn't affecting it, do I suggest it? No, I'm not a fan of it. But the fact is, it's going to be legal. It's, it's, and we're going to have to live with it and just learn to be educated and educate our loved ones about it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're getting, um, there's some more live ones, but we're getting a lot of questions. And I think maybe we just touch on the topic just an overall general, because a lot of people are asking very specific. People are talking about in general, when you find out somebody's abused, what's the general opinion of reporting, when yet to report, when not to report? What do you do when the abuser is younger? Like, let's say, you know, teenagers, so you don't want to get them into massive trouble. So a lot of these general questions, maybe you can give us some insights. Just there's so many coming in and they're very specific. Maybe we could just touch on that topic, reporting and how to deal with the issue once you have an issue. I hear that, but I wouldn't use the same verbiage that you used about that topic. We'll fix that for next time. I had to get you on that. Okay. Here's the answer. Somebody posted a question to me as well. If an older sibling did something to a younger sibling, does that mean someone did something to them? Not always. Let me explain it very, very simply. Okay. You asked a great question. If the, if it's two people and they're both underage, let me explain something. People have this big fear of child services or, uh, you know, DIFIS or DCPNP or ACS or CPS or call it whatever it is you want to uh, call it, that they come down, you know, with, with, with the helicopters and, and, and the warrant squad, and they're going to take away all the kids from the family when they hear something happened. So let me dispel that myth right now. Child Protective Services works the way you work with them. If they get a call about a case and it's two minors, their number one goal is to make sure that both minors are safe and get the help that they need. I can tell you that as a fact, they're not looking to take a 15 year old and put them quote unquote into jail. As a matter of fact, more often than not, they're gonna to wanna to take the 15 year old and try to focus on where did the 15 year old get that from in order to know to do it to a younger child. So when we talk about getting them into trouble, okay? It's not about trouble, it's about getting people help, okay? So off the bat, number one, when it's minors, at the end of the day, no matter how you slice it, they're not looking to quote unquote, get them into trouble. Now, as far as adults, I mean, again, first of all, every state has its own laws of what reporting is and isn't required. I will tell you the halachas are probably more stringent than the state laws, even though I know that when you go to a Rav, and this is like the best answer I get all the time. Somebody went to a Rav to ask a Shiloh, the Rav says, no, it's Asr, which I can, by the way, I'm not gonna say that I'm a bigger Paisic than all of these Rabbanim. They're much smarter than me. They're much more learned than me. But I, I know the Rambams that I learned. I, I, know, I, I know the entire Maramakimus of this topic, which we'll do another share on. And at the end of the day, someone has a Din Raid if there's no Din Masira whatsoever, period, end of story. And that applies even if there is a Din Masira in America today, which is in itself a Shiloh in and of itself. But we're not going to get into that right now. The fact if someone has a Din Raid if, right? Now, how, how many times do I hear from parents, the Rav said... If my child was the only one, then they can't report because maybe my child's lying. I've heard this. And then all of a sudden, the next answer comes back where now they found out that there were three or four victims. And they go back to the Rav and the Rav goes, well, if there's already one person that went to the authorities, then what's the point of you going? By you going, you're just making it worse. 
which basically means there's a way out on all sides of the coin. Now, again, I'm not here to pass in a shayla from a halachic standpoint. I could pass in dina nefashis. Dina nefashis, I can tell you, a child that is sexually abused has been murdered. That's it. That I can tell you is a fact. And unfortunately, and we've all seen this, where you hear about somebody, yeah, I knew the guy was creepy 15 years ago. I heard something. And then all of a sudden, you find out now that the person just got arrested. There are probably 50 more kabanis from when the people that quote unquote promised to deal with the issue 15 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago opted to turn the other way and to not look at it. And all of a sudden now, 50 kabanis later, there's actually an issue that has to be dealt with. So at the end of the day, you live in New Jersey. New Jersey has the strictest laws in the country. By law, every adult above the age of 18 is a mandated reporter. So if anyone in the state of New Jersey hears about anyone that was abused, you're all obligated to report. That's the law in Jersey. You figure out how you want to deal with the laws versus not versus yes. But I will tell you from a practical standpoint, first of all, less than 15% of cases ever get reported. I can tell you that unfortunately, of those 15% that get reported, I think it's like less than 5% of that 15 ever even lead to an arrest. Of that less than 5% that lead to an arrest, I think it's less than like 3% lead to a conviction and less than 1% of that 3% actually lead to a sentence. So at the end of the day, even cases that get reported either never make it to a trial or end up with a plea bargain with no jail or all these other things. But I'm not focused on the reported part. I'm focused on getting the person help. And if I can't get somebody help that was abused because they're scared to send this person to a licensed therapist and we all have seen how unlicensed therapists you know have their own track record of histories of years of abuse where they are supposedly experts in this field and then next thing you know they're getting arrested you know 10 15 years later at the end of the day if we're punishing the one for the other now don't get me wrong i feel bad somebody that's an abuser is sick and needs help don't get me wrong but at the end of the day not at the expense of our children at the end of the day, not at the expense of future generations. At the end of the day, you know what? Why don't you put up, Usher, can you put up that uh, that uh, poll that I uh, sent to you? Which one? Let's do it. I have both of them. I just sent you one right now, the cost. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go here. The cost? Yeah. Okay, here we go, everybody. What do you think the cost of trauma treatment for somebody over 35 years old costs? Everybody, come on, respond. It's anonymous. Five to 10,000. 10 to 20,000, 20 to 30,000, 30 to 40,000, or 50 plus thousand dollars. With insurance, without insurance. So I will tell you that it happens to be Baruch Hashem that we happen to be able to help find people some amazing programs that accept insurance because we're sick and tired of having to try to deal with it, but they don't know. That's the problem. They don't know. Let's end the poll. I think I think everybody's on target here. I think everybody's pretty much on target. I think everybody's on target. Okay. Bottom line, everybody knows the cost. How much money does it cost? So you're talking about anywhere between fifty dollars to $120,000 when people are already at that age for the amount of treatment that they need, inpatient treatment, family treatment, workshops, you name it. Versus if you get the child when they're younger, it's probably two to three years of intensive therapy. And then at that point, maybe there'll be a continuation. It'll be a lot cheaper both financially, emotionally, and you won't have all these other issues going on. So 
I, I got to tell you that <clears throat> this is my answer to that. With the awareness of Amudim, has anything changed? I'm saying in these communities, in the Heimish communities, nobody wants to report and everybody's scared. What has changed in the past? I'm saying, is anything happening with the awareness? So uh, obviously things are happening because when I'm looking up on the, uh, you know, the amount of cases that even we're getting and the phone calls that we're getting, and, and I'm sure it's not just us. I'm sure Relief has seen a major increase of caseload as well over the years. I'm sure others. I mean, we're not the only organization out there. But, uh, you know, certainly the awareness must have changed because, you know, from 145 cases in 2015 to 1198, you know, this year, I, I mean, obviously something has changed, right? So by definition, people are talking about it. I, I, I hear from people all the time that they're more open with their children about it. I give the following answer. We're definitely light years ahead of where we were five years ago, but we're definitely still have light years to go to get to where we need to get to. Hi, Ruvain. And what can we do so it goes a little faster to help? Exactly what you're doing. This is what I say. <laughs> Awareness, bringing us on, bringing the topic out, not making this a taboo subject. You know, and making sure that people know that if someone does have help, they need to get the proper help. There's help available. Someone needs it. There's help available. People don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed to be able to get the proper help. So they call Amudim direct. Amudim first. They go to Rabbanim. Where do they go? Go to professionals. This is my philosophy. Go to a professional, whether it's Amudim, whether it's relief, whether it's a private therapist that you know. Go to a professional. Uh, you know, I'm not here to sell Amudim. You know, I, I say this: if we were an investment firm, our investors would be thrilled with our numbers. But you know, we're an organization, and we got to rely on funding. So, but I'm not enough. Anyone needs our help, of course, they can call us. But the reality is, just seek a professional advice. Don't get me wrong. If you come to Amudim and you want us to discuss it with your of, of course, we'll discuss it with your of. We're not here to negate Das Tyra. But, you know, we'll educate them in the process as opposed to getting a blanket answer that's just going to be thrown out. And I'm sure you guys saw this over Shabbos yourself. How many parents did you meet over, over the weekend that the first three or four lines of defense by going to Rabbanim and Askanim did not do the trick for what they needed? Not they hope. I'm sorry? I'm not going to answer that question. Now, somebody wrote a question here about improvement. So let me say as follows. First of all, there's some amazing educational programs out there available coming soon to a school near you. Uh, Tarmasora just endorsed an entire program project, you know, that is run by people that we're very close to. Hopefully within the next few months, it'll be rolling out into different yeshivas. Nothing to do with sex or alcohol. It's more on, on a totally different way of living and, and scientifically evidence-based um, to really reduce these numbers and these rates. You know, our goal is to reduce what we're dealing with, not to continue what we're dealing with. So, you know, that's that. But until then, it's about awareness and just letting people know this is the reality and don't be embarrassed. And these things happen and we got to do our part to help those who need it. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's uh, I'm trying to navigate because we're getting questions from both sides. Um, I'm going to go back to that, but let's get into a little bit of physical abuse, okay? First, we'll talk sure. about um, children physical abuse and also, also sp spousal physical abuse. Um, what's your opinion on what's considered physical abuse with a child? What's considered within norms from your opinion? I mean, I just want to, let me preface my question more. I, I've heard recently that in today's day and age, in today's dark, because of all the changes, 
hitting a kid today, unless you're doing Hashem Shemayim, which is basically zero chance, all types of hitting is really today, in today's dar, considered physical abuse. So I, I, I will say it as follows. Um, you know, it's not just about hitting the kid. I, I want to tell you, one of the best experiences I had personally when I was in first or second grade, I'll never forget this like it was yesterday. I was having a very, very down day. And my the, the pre-1A Rebbe then, who wasn't my Rebbe anymore, was Rabbi uh, Official Schachter. And I'll never forget that he put his arm around me and said, Sadiqal, what's wrong? And we took a little walk around the block and I felt a million times better. And today you can't do that anymore. And that's the sad reality. But the fact is you can't do that anymore today. It's not just about hitting. It's any form of touching. or And it is what it is. Now, you know what? If the last generation would have dealt with these issues when it would have happened, you know, in the way, then at the end of the day, then maybe we wouldn't have those issues. So there's no form of hitting that is acceptable on any level. Okay, period, end of story. Um, domestic violence compared to children is like two different, completely different worlds. Okay? Let's, let's, let's go let's do domestic violence. After. Well, you you mentioned that, so I was just yeah, answering right. your second part. Okay, I'll so get to that in a minute. okay. You ready for that? that? That was the second part of your question. That's why I was going to it. Okay, sorry, go sorry. No, no, it's fine. I'm saying so. You had asked it. I was trying. Even with my ADHD, I still sometimes am able to remember. Uh, you know, one and two. And um, I'm the only one that has ADHD. I also do. Okay, but at least I'm being treated for it. What's your I can't even hear what you're saying. I'm so confused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> let's take on the first the kids and then we'll go to the adults. Fine. What's, what's considered physical abuse that you would see by somebody else or something that's concerning? You in shul just recently, I was I was in shul a few weeks ago and I saw somebody, not in our shul, in a different shul. I saw a kid, guy give a <laughs> kid a frask in the bottom. So, is that physical abuse? Um, so I'm gonna say yes. Now, again, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know if it's the kid's father or not the kid's father. But at the end of the day, in today's world that we're living in, you know, there's also laws about this. And yes, there are certain laws in certain states. You're allowed to hit your kid to a certain level. But let me tell you something. When you give, when, when that kid gets that fraskin punim, that fraskin punim is lasts a lot longer than if that kid would get a talking to. Now, I'm not talking about the generation where everybody gets participation trophies and no matter what you do, there's no such thing as losing. No, sometimes you lose. You didn't make it to the playoffs. You lost. You play harder next season, you know? But at the end of the day, that hit ends up lasting a lot longer than just the physical pain. And that's something that we're noticing now years later when dealing with people and they're raising their own kids. Now, sometimes if there's something dangerous and you have to push your kid away, you know, there's a car coming about to hit a kid. I'm going to jump in the street and knock my kid down to the ground. That's not abuse. I'm doing it to save them. But if the kid was a machutzif and all of a sudden you're going to go and patch the kid or hit the kid, how hard is it? First of all, even in order to hit a child, you can only do it when you're not because when you're completely relaxed, when you're doing it. And if you go through all the reasons, now tell me that that person that you witnessed hitting that kid Follow all the, even the halachic guidelines of being in the right frame of mind, calm, relaxed, and did it after everything or was it in the heat of the moment? So off the bat, I got to tell you, I don't know anybody that, hit the, that hits a kid that's not in the heat of the moment. So by definition, no good. NG, period, end of story. Okay, let's go into spousal because this is a big topic. Yeah, but the problem is my wife and my mother-in-law are watching, so you're putting me in a very awkward situation. Now. Should, I, should I unmute them so I can speak to them? Can we, can we put them on? Tell us uh, how to do it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Open discussion. So, so I will tell you, it's, it, it is a little bit scary than 
cases on spousal abuse, domestic violence. Before you go there, before you go there, before you go there, I just want to understand, can you give us a little bit, again, I don't want to speak openly, but I've seen as growing up as a kid, couples get into a pushing thing or this and that, like what is considered spousal abuse? If you're the spouse, you can even be the husband. What point is it considered a little bit like a sikh And what point does it get like, okay, this is not good? So first of all, I got to tell you, I just did a, a, a story with the Jewish press they interviewed me and about 25% of our cases of domestic violence are actually the husband or the victims. So something that most people never even think of, you know, again, just something that we see. Again, we're not Shalom Task Force. They deal with this a lot more than we do. They might have much different numbers, but what we're seeing at Amudim is 25% are men. Um, really, anything that is done that's going to make somebody uncomfortable, whether it's a in a physical way, whether it's an emotional way, whether it's financial abuse, you know, domestic violence doesn't have to always mean that the 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 the, the, the partner are hitting each other. There's financial intimidation. There's emotional abuse. There's you know putting people down. There are so many different components to domestic violence, and the worst part about domestic violence that I say is the victims don't even realize they're being victimized. They get so used to it. It becomes a part of their life. And usually it's an outsider that realizes it, tries to bring it up, and then they don't want to hear it. So now they're losing their friends. So we get calls from people that say, you know, I saw so-and-so, this, my friend's husband did this to her and she won't listen to me. What do I do? How do we get them the proper help? You know, and it's, it's a very, very tough call. I mean, I know that there was at one point there was training shaitlamachers because that's where people talked. And there was training, you know, the, um, you know, the, the mikveh, mikveh attendants to be able to notice if there was something there. I think it's got to go a couple of steps, you know, before that. I think we got to do real focus training on college teachers and custom teachers and teach them about all these different topics so that going into a marriage, really it should start in high school, but get the high schools to let that in, you know, as a whole separate discussion. But at the very least, it should be the college teachers or the chassan teachers. I'll repeat that again. It should really be starting in high schools. But anyway, but where we could teach about, you know, true relationships and, and what that means. And I got to say that in a, um, you know, that the hardest part is when the victim does not realize they're being a victim. And by the time they find out the pain and suffering that they've gone through, and then the children go through, because, you know, this is like the secondary, you know, we talk about secondary trauma. So now you have the secondary trauma here. The children see this. So either this is what they learned from, and now that's how they're going to act when they get older, or it leads to a divorce. And now the children become the pawns in the divorce because everybody always fights for the kids. I've never met a couple that didn't fight for the kids. I could say it's a guaranteed way to keep Amudim in business, keep fighting for the kids. And we don't want your business. So stop it already. Do what's right for the kids. Okay. Stop fighting for the kids. It's baloney. But at the end of the day, that's the real issue with domestic violence. And, you know, a, a lot of times there's things that bring it out and exacerbate the situation. And a lot of times I will tell you people that are caught early on enough. And I will say this, you know, we have an office in Israel that deals with yeshiva students, seminary girls and the young couples that are living there. I will tell you, we have a lot of cases. There's one Rav in Muncie who has said this to us a bunch of times already that he deals a lot with um, with what they do. he's um is you know runs a Besdin deals a lot with Gittin, and he says to me all the time that we've saved plenty of marriages. Why? Because we're able to get them the proper help early on when it was noticed. And by the way, I will say something else. Now this is going to sound a little bit crazy, but I'm going to say it also. Very often the abuse the, the abusive party in a domestic violence relationship may not even realize how abusive they are. I'm not defending it. I want to be very clear. I am not defending the actions at all. 
but they may not even realize what they're doing or the effect that it's having on the other party. So it's about proper training, proper education, the same like everything else. The earlier we train, the earlier we educate, the less of these issues we're going to have to deal with. I'm getting a few texts here, and I think it's a very important topic. I didn't, I didn't even think about it, but I see like three, four of these texts. People are saying, and I happen to happen to have experience with this from somebody I know, that they, they start feeling depression, they start feeling all these different feelings as they start uh, getting older. And then what happens is they go to the therapist and the therapist starts sitting down with them and saying, how do you feel? What's bothering you? And they start going into their past and they uh, make up, I don't know the right word how to say, it, but you know what I'm saying? You know, they start making believe that they had certain memories or things that happened. In reality, it didn't happen or they're, they're creating those memories. Have you ever had such cases? Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Uh, are you saying that as a fact, like that if somebody who's 35 years old and is now suffering from depression, who's now going to a therapist is going to start making up stories? I don't know. The therapist tries to go and find out that something happened, that something uh, happened to you. Again. You would have create, uh, uh, you know, again, you don't remember what happened to so this, so, so this is something, you know, that is going to be, I'm going to say, therapist specific. In other words, a good therapist is not asking leading questions. They're there to listen, not to try to extract information out of you. And I say the same thing when dealing with even with abuse cases. You know, I'm always very careful that the therapists have to be there to help the victims heal, not to relive their trauma. So at the end of the day, if somebody's going to a therapist who's busy doing forensic questioning to get information from them about what happened to them years ago, as opposed to helping them deal with their, now don't get me wrong, there's the flip side too, which is sometimes when somebody starts off going to therapy, by definition, they're going to feel more open and more comfortable, and they might be start sharing things that they would have otherwise not shared. Now, that happens a lot. I'll give you the, the classic example, at least in the firm setting. When Mrs. Cohn, I made up the name, calls up Amudim about her daughter who needs to get help, and then the daughter goes into treatment, and then three weeks later, Mrs. Amudim gets a call from Mrs. Cohn. My daughter is not keeping Shabbos or eating kosher ever since, you know, we came to Amudim for help. And it's like, yes, Mrs. Cohn, your daughter hasn't been firm for three years because she came to us three weeks ago. Very often, people don't realize what's really going on, and therapy could help to deal with it. Now, if there is a trauma past and someone is suffering from anxiety and depression, that's also where you run the risk of the, the therapist has to be, and this is where it's key. A therapist is like a shidduch. They don't always work. So if somebody is by a therapist and after a few sessions, it's not going, there's nothing wrong with trying to switch to another therapist. All too often, we're getting calls. Somebody was by a therapist for a year, went nowhere, all that money, and now all of a sudden starting again. I wouldn't say that therapists, as a rule, are trying to extrapolate information to make people believe and have false memories. I would find that very, very hard to believe in the big picture. Um, but I could tell you that there are a lot of people that are adults that start struggling with depression or other things that do have underlying issues that were never addressed. And that is very, very common. So, people, yeah. to, people are scared to go to therapy because that's what it looks like sometimes. Because right. once they go to therapy, things come out and by them, it's like, why go to therapy? And then all this stuff that's probably not true. So I'll tell you from myself. First of all, I'm proud to admit it. I go to therapy. I should have probably started many years before I started going. I, I actually started going after the patira of Mendy Klein's Akhrenal of Rocha. That's what did it to me. Um, you know, and that was for a variety of reasons. But I will tell you that my going has helped me in a trem tremendously in so many other ways that has been really amazing. 
and I suggest it for everybody. Um, you know, we'll give out free therapy for the world. No, but I'm saying the reality is a lot of us, you know, listen, depending on our ages, children of Holocaust survivors, a lot of us grew up without grandparents. A lot of us had very different backgrounds. I mean, listen, I myself became an educational expert by attending 14 high schools in three and a half years. You know, there's a lot of different things that some of us were able to do better than others, you know. But at the end of the day, the stigma of going to therapy, I think we have to thank Binyamin Babad and say that that stigma is really not there anymore. I mean, what Rabbi Yaman did in relief, at least from that component, God bless them. Okay, and so many others as well. They're, they're coming anymore. on, they're coming on. They are coming on? Beautiful. Yep. Good people. Who, him and Dovi? Him and Sender. Oh, Sender. Okay, should get him and Dovi. I mean, I like Sender too, but, you know, people... Yeah, of course, I, I like... I'll tell them that Sender should come tell on. Tell him, no, Sender should come on, but bring Dovi on too. Boots on the ground. Um, I, I love them all, but boots on the ground. Get people in the trenches. Um, as far as that, and, and, I, and I always say it all the time, I'm proud to say that I'm in therapy. Because if even one person decides to go, because they heard me say it, I'm already, I've already accomplished everything I'm trying to do. The fact is, and therapy could bring up issues, and it could. And you know what, Coach Menachem, you're right. And if it does, that means we got to get more help. And that's the purpose. Okay, how does one know if the relationship is an abusive relationship and needs to be reported or some type of help, professional help, like you say, or the spouse just had a hard day? So, you know, it's, it, people make fun of me, especially some of the guys I work with. I started this thing about two and a half, three years ago, that if I don't come into my house, if I'm hungry, myself, I don't walk into my house hungry. I will go to 7-Eleven. I'll get a pre-made sandwich from Wasserman's. I live in Queens. I'll eat the sandwich. I'll have a can of soda. And then I'll go into my house. Because I know that when I'm hungry, my kids are much more unnerving for me to deal with than when I'm not hungry. Myself, everyone knows for themselves. Everybody can find their own skill set to make sure that they can walk into their house and not because they had a bad day, take it out on their loved ones. If you wouldn't eat that sandwich, would you call yourself abusive? I don't think I would call myself abusive, but I could see myself losing my temper. I could see myself getting angry much quicker. So that's what we're uh, trying to figure out. When is it... So What's again, the red line, the fine line. So, so the red line is something that is a very hard thing to define, especially as I said, most victims of domestic violence don't even know that they're victims. So I, obviously, if someone hits their spouse, that's a red line. Obviously, if someone you know does something to purposely hurt their spouse emotionally or verbally, that's a red line. Now, is the red line? I can't believe this. I had a crazy long day. I came home and there's no food and starts yelling at them, or is the red line something like you know scream? You know, the answer is it's different for everybody. But the truth is, whatever we could do to avoid any of those, and now don't get me wrong, couples have fight. It, it's, it's, it's human nature. But minimize it. Do whatever we can to mitigate it. As far as how do we realize if somebody's in an abusive relationship, it, usually we don't. Usually it's the outsiders that realize it. Very, very uncommon uh, until maybe people have teenage children who start then telling them, you know, I can't live watching you like this anymore, or things of that nature, which we see very often as well. It's, let's, let's keep going. We have a lot more questions. I want to cover more ground. Um, somebody, a question just came in. Um, I know when I was younger, I was sexually abused. I'm an older person. I'm in my 40s now. My life's good. Nothing bothers me. Is there any reason why I should seek out help? Yes or no? No. If somebody is, has nothing to worry about, no. Is it, is it a possibility? I guess this is one saying there are people that 
have figured, listen, I can tell you two twin brothers that we dealt with. They were both abused by the same grandfather. One of them over a period of five years. One of them over a period of two months. The one that was abused for two months, Nabuch Adayamazeh in his 40s is still struggling. And the one that was abused for a much longer amount of time, never dealt with it at all, married kids, you know, very decent business. It, it, and every person reacts differently. So I'm not one of those guys that's going to jump in. Oh, you were abused. You must stop everything and run for therapy. No, you run for therapy if you feel you need it. But as long as you're aware of the fact that you were abused, which means that if you start noticing anything that starts affecting you, you'll be able to at least try to target it, which very often can happen, like I said, when people's children get older is when it starts affecting them or other things. So at least be self-aware enough to know that you got to try to get help if you need it. We're going to go a little backwards back into addiction stuff. Um, I noticed that there's some painkillers missing from my cabinet. I have a bunch of kids. How do I, what, what's my first step? What do I do? So the first step that you do is, again, prevention is the key. You should not have painkillers in a cabinet if it's not locked or your kids have access to it. That's Aleph. Okay. Um, by the way, on that same token, for those that have children on ADHD medications, if your kid has to take them during school, please do yourselves a favor and make sure the school's aware of it so that they can give it because all too often, especially in high schools where girls are sharing their ADHD medication with each other, cramming for a test, wanting to lose weight, the Adderall diet, we can go through the whole nine yards, okay? So off the bat, if you have any prescription drugs, whether it's for you, for your children, make sure it's, it's in a secure place and it's always there. Now, if you already know that it's being used, I pause you for a second? Can we Please. take a second intermission? So the joke goes as follows. Let me know if you know the joke. <laughs> they gave the, the, the Rebbe the pills for the kid that they should give him for the, ADHD, for the ADHD. And, you know, the kid, the, the Rebbe was screaming. The kid's out of control. The class is out of control. Was, he, the, the Rebbe was having a nervous breakdown. They got the kid the medication. They told the Rebbe every day to give the kid the medication. A few months later, they met the Rebbe. They asked the Rebbe, how's it going? He said, Baruch Hashem, it's going unbelievable. They said, how do you work with the medication? Nobody knows. He says, I give him the medication and uh, he makes coffee and he brings it to me and he takes the medication. So they asked uh, the kid, how does he take the medication? He says, oh, I put it in my Rebbe's drink. It's been working wonders. Okay, continue. So it happens to me, that's not such a joke. It happens to be, it, I think it's a true story. Now we got to find out who it's from so we can publish it in the next book. But at the end of the day, um, if somebody notices that medication is missing from their cabinet, so first thing is never go into the ac accusatory mode because that just creates everybody to be on the defensive. So figure out a way to try to track down who's using it. And if somebody finds out that it's their teenage son or daughter, start off with a conversation. Start off with a conversation. Don't start off with the whole yelling, screaming, coming, going, have a conversation. Listen, I noticed that this is missing. You know, I'm a little worried. Can you tell me what's going on? Start that way. You don't have to jump the gun. The conversation doesn't work. You go step up a level, speak to an expert, speak to somebody who knows what they're doing, reach out to a professional, but have that conversation first. Okay, let's go to another live question. You ready? Jeremy. How are you? Okay, hello, Rabbi Gluck. Thank you, uh, Oshi, for encouraging me. Um, Rabbi Gluck, you're I want to ask board, you. are on the board of questionnaires. I know, I have to ask. People are going to say, where's Jeremy? Where's Jeremy? Rabbi Gluck, I have a general question here for you. Explain, as usual, I explain myself, and we'll see where you go. There was recently a yeshiva in Lakewood. I'm not going to say the name. They're unique yeshiva. They deal with our, the very special neshamas here. So they did a big campaign, 
And uh, somebody donated to the campaign. So I told her, thank you. So she told me, I donated to that yeshiva, hoping that my son should never need it. So I'm going to make an assumption over here that a lot of us on the line, we're like, okay, you know, Tzvi Glock, he's a cool guy, but, you know, Amudim, it's another organization. We're here for entertainment. And we're all like saying, you know, hopefully we should never need it, or we already know we're never going to need it. And I also noticed from some of your comments and my imagination that you probably have more success within certain communities more than others. And I'm going to venture to say that maybe in the community that a lot of us live in, you don't have such a great presence. Or maybe you have some difficulty. You said it's hard to get into schools, hard to do this, that, the other thing. My question is, as us leaders in the community, parents, uh, members of school boards, whatever, whatever, what could we be doing or should we be doing together with Amudim to bring more awareness to the community of your programs, of these issues, so on and so forth? So first of all, thank you for that question um, and pleasure to meet you. Uh, I, I don't think I would say that Amudim as an issue in Lakewood, I think Amudim's issue in Lakewood is that it's about 10% of our total caseload and about less than 0.5% of our total money coming in is my issue in Lakewood. I think I'll just make that as a statement. Jeremy, um, I'm just saying it straight. Jeremy, just cut the check, think, to, cut yeah, the check I to Amudim. I think we've spent so far $2.2 million in Lakewood over the last five and a half years. Write the check to Amudim and discuss that your kids won't need it. But anyway, that's Aleph. We've dealt with Oshie, close to Oshie, we're, we're, we're going to have to mute WhatsApp statuses for another two weeks now. No problem. <laughs> so I will tell you like this. First of all, from the client side, we, we have a very large presence in Lakewood. But what makes us special is that we're ghosts. So people feel comfortable calling because we're not a local organization, quote unquote, that they're going to see someone every day in, you know, in the shul or in the community but we've serviced uh, close to a thousand families in Lakewood um, since inception. Now it might be a drop in the bucket considering how many people live in Lakewood, don't get me wrong. Um, but as far as that, listen, we've done an awareness event in 2016. We had over a thousand people on Lake Terrace Hall and over 35,000 people watched it live on their neighbor's internet. I guess now it's okay to have internet so they don't gotta use the neighbors anymore because of Corona. Um, we've done in 2018, we did an awareness event together with uh, uh, with Chaim Abadi, with the Minyan, we did something together with him. Um, we're free. We don't charge money for any events. We don't charge honorarium fees. I don't take any speaking fees. We don't have anything. So anybody that wants us to come, it's for us, it's an honor anywhere we go. If we have to travel out of state, we do request that they pay for our expenses. I'm not flying to Texas on my own dime. I could really cover my bills. Um, but as far as uh, schools and other things, again, you know, it really depends on, you know, who's in control and how to get the schools to understand that education is the key. Our children spend more than half their waking hours in a school setting. That's where, the, that's where they spend it, right? So that's really where we have to focus. We have a whole training program for Rabbeim, for teachers, for directors of school. We have a legal program where we help them understand, you know, one of the schools we went to we spoke about putting cameras in the schools. And they were like, oh, if we put cameras, everyone's going to think that there's a problem. I said, one second, you right away, if I tell you that any Rebbe in your school did something wrong, you're gonna say it's not true, right? Yeah. Okay, so put in the cameras, then you know for sure it's not true because you built to go to the cameras and check it. You're doing it to protect the Rebbe. Don't make it about, you know, whichever way you have to squeeze it in, you get it in. The schools should do it. We should do more public awareness events. It doesn't have to be us. It could be us. We're here to help. But the point is, awareness is the key and prevention is the key. So what is it? 
you tell us. Everybody has to know what works in their community. I can tell you what doesn't work in your community. I can't tell you what does because I only get the calls when it doesn't. So I want to ask you a follow-up question. If there's Lakewood parents who feel that this topic is more taboo in our community or that our children are more at risk of sexual or other kinds of abuse because of whatever assumptions we would like to make about the community or its leadership, you would say that's not the case? I will tell you that is the biggest myth in the world, and I am guilty of believing that myth myself until about four and a half years ago, when Mendy Klein, Oliver Shalman, basically forced me into a, a mudum and making it what it became. I was in that world where I grew up in Borough Park, and this was a firm problem and a Haredi problem and a Hasidish problem and a Lakewood problem, v'chulu, v'chulu. I got to tell you, six years later, thousands of clients later, this issue is the exact same. Hasidish, Litvish, modern Orthodox, religious, non-religious, Jew Jewish, non-Jewish, you know, the only interesting place where you see a difference, and it's a slight difference, but a difference, is in what's considered an insular community. And we don't even have time now to do another poll, but I will say the following question. When you think of an insular community, please tell me, first three communities come to mind. KJ. Second. Scranton, where I'm from. No, I'm kidding. Okay, Square and third. South Fallsburg? I don't know. Okay, perfect, right? What if I told you New Rochelle is considered an insular community? What would you say to me? Not my first choice, but I understand what you're saying. Oh, an insular community means where your life, your work, and your social circles revolve around the same ideals of those that you're interacting with. That's what defines you as insular. It has nothing to do with KJ, Lakewood, Square, Hasidish, Litvish, doesn't matter. I will tell you issues of abuse, sexual abuse, addiction, mental health, suicidal ideations, across the board, the same everywhere. The difference is how do we respond to it? Are we going to be reactive or proactive? That's the difference. But I will tell you that these issues across the board, percentage-wise, I could probably show you community by community, they're all pretty much going to be the same numbers. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. There's just a few more questions I want to cover. If you have a few more minutes, I know. Yeah. I'm here. I'm having oral surgery tomorrow morning, and I don't take painkillers, so it's going to be great. So to keep me up all night. You leave the zoom on for that? How do you discourage your child from addictive behaviors when your spouse actually has those addictive behaviors themselves? So you first work on getting your spouse to help that your spouse needs. And then you can deal with the child. I told you, you can't educate a child when they see their parent doing what you don't want them to do. It just doesn't work. There's no systematic approach to it. You know, I told you in the beginning of this, do as I say, not as I do, is not a practical, it's not a real way to be a child. It just doesn't work. Are you sort of in essence saying that if a person has a spouse that has a serious addiction problem? They have to get their spouse the help that the spouse needs so that their child won't follow suit. That's exact. That's not sort of what I'm saying. That's exactly, what, that's exactly what I'm saying. What happens if somebody's divorced? Their spouse has that problem. What are they supposed to do now? So again, now you're getting into a whole other topic, but if their spouse has that problem, then they have to have that conversation with the child. They have to be able to, like I said, open and honest. If somebody is going to the other parent and the courts have awarded custody in a way where they're going to be going, and that's just 
the way it is, then you got no choice. You got to be open with the, you got to be open and say, listen, you might see mommy or daddy or whatever, Amaiba, whatever you call them, doing A, B, and C, understand that this is not appropriate behavior. And, you know, just please be careful and don't get into it. Just have that as a conversation. Again, age appropriate conversation. Make sure of that, but you got to have that conversation. Somebody just asked a question here right now. How can you force someone to get help if they're not ready to see it? Some, I said this answer earlier, I'll say it again. You cannot force anybody to get help, but everybody has some sort of support structure around them, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's a spouse, siblings, coworkers, get the supporting environment around the person that needs help into the proper help so that by definition, it'll filter to the person who needs it. Sorry, I should go ahead. Um, this is an interesting question. It's coming from a teenager. Ready to go that angle? You know, I guess so. I was once a teenager too, right? I'm a teenager and I feel there's something wrong in my home. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Everything is negative. Everything we do is wrong. And one of my parents comes home, everything is quiet. We're scared to talk. I don't know where to go for help. What do I do? Okay, so that is something that we deal with a lot. And first of all, I'm sorry for you that you're going through this. I would ask the following questions. Number one is, do you have a family member outside of your immediate family, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, a married sibling, somebody that you feel comfortable that you can talk to? Is there a close family friend that you can trust? Is there a Rebbe that you've had or a teacher, depending if you're a boy or girl, that you feel close to that you can address this with to try to see if there's a way to get someone into the home to speak to the parents and to try to figure out how to create a safety plan and a proper cohesive environment for everybody to be on the same place where people can feel healthy in their home. There's nothing worse than somebody having to live in a home and not feel safe there, ever. So I, I would try to find any and all options and find that one person, whether it's the father's rub, whether it's your Rebbe, whether it's a neighbor or somebody, who you can trust, feel comfortable with, share these feelings with, and try to figure out how to get the parents into a room with the appropriate professionals so that we can try to deal with this. Okay, we got two more questions I want to cover because they were important. I was going to try to get to it. Um, let me see if he wants to ask live. Can you ready to ask live? Here we go. Okay, so thank you so, so much for this unbelievable and in general and specifically you have such vital information sorry for my voice such vital information on such critical topics and over the last few years i i find that you are one of the only people voicing these important things so those of us who are inspired by you what can we do without having to go through what you had to go through and um, to further this important awareness saving lives um, in an unassuming way. So what do you mean what I had to go through? Like I, I missed that part. What did I go through? I just made enemies for the last six years and I just kept making more and more enemies and Baruch Hashem, close to 8,000 people got help. <laughs> I think I think we've already broken that mold. You're not going to make enemies anymore. I took, I took that burden off you. You're good. So the answer is, you daven in a shul? Yeah. Good. There's a rub of the shul? There are balabatim in the shul. Yeah. If the balabatim, are there a few balabatim that help support the shul? I hope so. 
Good. So we start with those about them. Always follow the money. Mendy Klein, all of Sholem, always taught me. You want to find out where to get to the core? Follow the money. You get to the answer. So you start with the Balabatim of the shul. You start with the Balabatim, the board members of the school. You, you go to the people who have influence, who can say, these are serious issues that we, we know we're dealing with. How can we better educate ourselves, our community, our loved ones? Because this is issues of Dine Nefashis Mamish, which is really what it is. I don't think there's any way to, uh, you know, to say it any other way. I, I don't think it's going to be caught with as much you know, issues that we had five, six years ago. I mean, listen, let's call it what it is. Over the last six years, we've had presentations that I think four of the last six are good to conventions. Uh, three of the last five Torah Masora conventions. Uh, three of the last three Torah Masora presidents conferences. Saying the discussion is being spoken on, on, on the bigger playing field. It's not anymore where it was. So it's just a question of how to get it into your community, your shul, you know, your kids' schools. I think it's possible. And I'm here to help. If I can help in any way, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not shy. Yes, I know that. Thank you. <clears throat> Somebody sent in a question. Dealing with an internet, uh, internet addiction or their spouse, not porn, just technology. Mm-hmm. Any advice as a wife, how to deal how to deal with it in terms of managing and coping and in terms of influencing the kids. They know there's something going on. Um, I don't know how much they, they know, but any advice for the... Um... So the first thing I'll tell you is whenever a parent asks themselves the question and says, I don't know how much the kids know, it's safe to assume the kids know a lot more than you think they know. This, I will say, really goes off the bat, okay? Now... It's like any other addiction, like any other addiction. It's the same concept. If, if, if the spouse is not able to deal with it, so then we, we try to get the other spouse the support that he or she needs in order to get the spouse to deal with it. As far as the fact that it's affecting the children, again, it, it's an addiction. You know, it's like you, you tell an addict what you're doing is hurting the kids. No, it's not. Why? Because I said so. So you got to try to have the conversation. Maybe if there is a way to come up with a, Mahalach, that would be great, but there always there isn't always the perfect answer. But at least if if the spouse is recognizing that my loved one has this problem, that's already the first step. And if the loved one is not ready to get the help that they need, okay, so at least let's get the person, the other spouse, you know, the other affected party, as we call it, the help to make them help them get them the strength to be able to address and assess this in a proper, healthy manner. As far as the children, the same thing, like I said before, open and honest. Speak to the children. Say, listen, this is a problem. This is not something that we think should be going on. But, um, you know, this is what's happening. And we're trying to deal with it as best as we could. Again, age appropriate, of course. Ashi, can you throw on that last uh, poll question? Please. Here we go. This one? Here we go. This one? Yep. What is the number one concern with unfiltered internet? First option, pornography. Second option, the second option, access to open information otherwise not accessible. Three, online gaming. Four, meeting boys slash girlfriends or dangerous people. What's what is your number? What what the, what is your number one concern with unfiltered internet? What what is the? I'm sorry. What is? Let's see. Let's let's see if they can get it right. See, so we have to cover one topic we did not touch yet. By the way, it's another whole topic we didn't touch. Not even close to being right. 
And this is this is what happens when we are focused on the, you know, and I'm, I love TAG. I think it's a great concept, you know, the technology awareness group. But I think it's probably- oh, I, Nobody can see the results yet. So let me let them finish. You can see it because you're co-host. Give me a second. Oh, I didn't realize that it's still going on. Sorry. Going three seconds, four, three, one. Ready? I think some people figured out my answer as I was talking. Uh -huh. So they started answering other things. I should have kept quiet longer. Oh, it's fake okay. It's the ballots. It's the ballots being mailed in. Yeah, I see that. We'll get them in four days. Right. I'll go to a couple of cemeteries. Anyway, okay. um, so fifty-three percent of people feel that the number one concern with unfiltered internet would be pornography. Twenty-one percent access to open information otherwise not accessible. Only six percent are concerned about online gaming. Twenty percent are consider are concerned about meeting boys slash girlfriends or dangerous people. Now, by the way, I, I hate to say this, but I, I guess you're from Lakewood, right? Because that wasn't you. Because that wasn't my question. Wasn't boyfriend, girlfriend, or dangerous people? Boyfriend, girlfriend, are not the same thing as dangerous people. But we'll get to that soon anyway. Pornography. Well, we're Lakewood is the most hushover crowd. This is our crowd, and we're here. No, I'm. You, you said it's my show tonight. Make up your mind. Is it my show or am I a guest? Whichever way you want it, I can go either way. I will answer you as follows. Most people will say pornography. In reality, that is not true. As a matter of fact. How do we know it's not true? This is an adult show. Anyone here that wanted any sort of pornography when we were younger, found somebody down the street, paid them an extra few dollars and got what we wanted from the store. So obviously we didn't need the internet for that, right? I hate to say that. It doesn't mean that it's not an issue, but, and this is where it becomes a problem. When we start talking about filters and phones and we don't educate the kids as to why it's so important and what makes the internet so dangerous, and by the way, the number one issue is meeting dangerous people. That is the number one issue as far as unfiltered internet and what issues it can potentially cause. Thank you, Dove. That is the number one issue. And the next issue is access to open information, otherwise not accessible. Now, what do I mean by that? Especially in a from crowd is where we're taught certain things and we go online and we see the exact opposite of what we're taught because the tyrant says one thing, we learn something else. And instead of us being in a world where people can be properly educated and know how to answer questions, we're not getting it. Don't get me wrong. Yes, pornography is an issue. Absolutely, it is. It is not the number one issue. And as long as we think it is, that is the problem. So the number one issue is meeting inappropriate people that can cause us harm one way or the other. That is extremely important. Okay. Let's touch on the last topic, which is a big topic, and um, it's already very late, and a lot of people are going to start leaving soon, which is fine. But this is this is this is really, in my opinion, I'm not a professional. Um, let's talk about emotional abuse, okay? And now there's many levels of it, and we're getting a lot of different texts about it. We we are talking about a, um, you know, between spouses, a spouse, which is emotional abuse, and then obviously we're talking about kids' emotional abuse. Can you define what it is? What's what's considered serious? Obviously, everybody everybody goes through some type of emotional abuse, right? As a parent, you sometimes communicate too loud. So abuse is, emotional abuse is a very big word. Can you define what it means and explain, explain it in more detail? So again, it, it's very, very, very difficult um, to define it because like I mentioned earlier with that case of sexual abuse with two twins and they reacted differently, emotional abuse even more so. No two people will react to the same situation the same way. So it's a very, very tough question to answer. I will, I could answer the, the other side of the coin. The effects of emotional abuse are just as damaging as the effects of physical and sexual abuse. 
So it's something that people sometimes are like, oh, well, like, it's not such a big deal. It's only A, B, or C. It really is. In other words, from the other side of the coin, I will say straight out that the effects of emotional abuse are very, very, very painful. They're long lasting and require a lot of work to deal with, especially people get older. Now, there is obviously a difference between what's considered emotional abuse, whether you're talking about dealing with, um, you know, domestic, on the domestic side or the child side. And a lot of the topics, we kept going into both directions, but they're really very different. And we have to remember that because very often in the domestic violence situation, emotional abuse is a, is a tool, is a weapon that the abusive partner is utilizing to gain the power. Very often when we're dealing with children that are suffering from being emotionally abused by a parent, teacher, camper, friend, bully, whatever it might be, it's not always done. The, the intent is very different, which also makes the treatment very different as well. So that, like I said before, very often parents don't even realize that they're coming home, long day of work, yelling, screaming, this isn't ready, that's not ready. And I'm sure I'm guilty of this too. I'm not gonna lie, I'm not Mr. Per I'm not the perfect father. Far from it. You don't believe me? Ask my kids. They will for sure tell you that. But we try the best we could. But our job is to do the best we can to avoid even getting into those situations in the first place. So, you know, when, when we're talking about, you know, emotional abuse, you know, a kid not being great, you know, this is the best thing. You know, I had this session I did with um, W. Morgenstern, Reverend Morgenstern, uh, a few weeks ago with the United Task Force and someone else. And, um, you know, there was a question that was posted him something about, uh, you know, what if your child doesn't want to get on Zoom school? Do they have Zoom school in Lakewood or they're still only by phone? By phone. Oh, okay. So in other parts of the world, there's Zoom school. He goes, what if your kid doesn't want to get on? He goes, what are your choices? Just so he won't get on. In other words, don't yell at your kid and fight with him for something that's going to end up causing other damage. You know, when you're trying to get your kid to do something and they're not ready to do it, so all of a sudden now it becomes a yelling match. And now what was supposed to be something fun or exciting that you were heading towards now became a whole other balaga. Now it's affecting all the rest of the kids, the rest of the family, and all for what? So now the kid should be angry at you for a week and not forget it. And you did this and this. So at the end of the day, you know, a kid doesn't do great in school, right? Doesn't get the best grades. Okay, so you have a discussion with the kid, you know, let's talk about it. What can we do to help you get better grades? What can we do to help you, you know, this? But the big concern with emotional abuse is that it is very hard to see it. It's very hard to detect it. And when it does come out, it usually, meaning from the victim side, it usually comes out fast and furious because it's bottled up for a very extended amount of time. So somebody just posted a question, is possible for a person to fully recover from abuse? I, I, you know, I have to say that is probably one of the best questions that, that I frequently get. And I got to say the answer, I don't know. Fully recover versus learn how to overcome and live a healthy and productive life are not the same thing. Is it possible for somebody to overcome the abuse and trauma that they suffered? and be productive and be able to give back? Absolutely, 100%. We see it all the time. Otherwise, neither me nor any one of my amazing dedicated staff, which I have to say, I am Baruch Hashem blessed with the most amazing team in the world. And I, and I say this proudly, 
you know, really what they do for Klai Yisrael, literally the unsung heroes of today's generation. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Is it possible to fully recover? Again, somebody breaks a bone and it gets reset. Was the bone broken? The bone got reset, but it was broken. There was damage. It got reset. They can function. Life goes on. You can heal. You can get better. So fully recover is an answer that I could not say 100% because I don't know. But I could say that people can thrive. They can, they can go from being victims to survivors and then to thrivers. And that's the goal. Not just to get people to be survivors, but to help them thrive, help them get above and beyond whatever they were struggling with, whether it's abuse, whether it's addiction, mental illness, it doesn't matter. Whatever that may be, that is the key. Thank you, Tonight was beautiful. We'll go to closing now. Um, one second. Before you go to closing, one second, because there were some interesting questions in the beginning. So I just wanted to talk one or two of them that I felt were really important, but I kept them on the side. I copied and pasted them, but let's say, how dangerous is it for someone who takes prescribed medications for ADHD to be drinking alcohol, even by a kiddish? So this is my paramedic hat, being in Atala 21 years. Very dangerous. Okay, never mix... You know, when the bottle of pills says, do not take with alcohol, it's not a suggestion. There's a reason for it. So please be very, very careful. And then the one thing I always mention, and I got to say this, if you're at a Kiddush, if you're at a Simcha, somebody's making a Lachayim, and they come over to you and, they, and, you, and you walk over to somebody and you offer them a Lachayim, and they say, no, nah, no, thank you. Please do not ask that person a second time. For all you know, that is a person in recovery. And by you asking them again, you might start sort of putting peer pressure and you might actually cause that person to take that drink, which will now turn into something much more. So please, one favor of everybody. If you offer somebody a drink and they say no, please leave it at that. Do not ask them again. Those are my closing remarks. Obviously, um, if anybody needs anything from us, you can find us on the web. I'll let Ashi share our website. He knows it better than I do. When I, so yeah, I want you to also leave off with a closing note with some chizik and what people could do when they are in situations. Because there's so many questions that we did not get to. I have a lot more questions. We covered very surface material, nothing very deep, and there's a lot of specifics. So let's get to that by closing. Again, I want to thank Rabbi Gluck for coming on tonight from Mudim. Gave everybody tremendous chizik, awareness. Again, 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 after this weekend that I spent with so many hundreds of parents, who are dealing with such uh, issues, it's, it's, the numbers are staggering. And the reason why I asked you to share the numbers in the beginning of the program, because people think this is very like, not so common. It's, it's more than you think. And if, uh, if people would be aware of that, it would be very helpful. And the reason why we want to discuss it and talking about these things is that we should have awareness and people should know that this are serious situations and what we could do. We didn't give all the magic answers. There are not so many magic answers, but there's a lot of people that could help you if there's an issue or if they have preventative issues, be aware of it. Don't live in la la land because it's not gonna, it's not gonna be helpful once, you know, a lot of the parents I dealt with, they also lived in La La Land. And now, you know, a few heart attacks later, they're, they're dealing with real issues. And I'm not saying every, every single one of them could have been prevented, but I'm sure there was a big handful that if they would have done certain things, it would have been more helpful. And even if it wouldn't have been helpful when they started, at least before things got worse and worse. And I just want to say one thing, I was speaking to parents, this, the Shabbos, I just have to say this, because I was just crying. It's parents who, who gave everything for their kid from from little kid from like 11, 12 years old, they started drinking. And that turned into marijuana, that turned into cocaine, that turned into this, that turned into that. And the parent did so much for this kid from rehabs to flying them to 
everything. And then I spoke to him and he's so happy. He's, he's so sameach with his, with his situation today. So I said, wow, it sounds like your kid is like really recovering. He said, no, my kid's not recovering. My kid's actually getting worse. I'm there, I'm holding my hand and I have a relationship with him. But the, the fact that there's people going through this and these are regular people in every single community. I saw it, I was there. I could not believe it. So it's really your neighbor down the block. It could be your cousin, it could be anybody, but people are going through it. And um, we have to really wake up and smell the reality and get the help now and be aware of it and don't live in this world that doesn't exist. Uh, again, tonight's show was sponsored by Lakewood Friends of Sea in honor of all the all that he does for Kleisrol. I, I got to know him a little bit. People tell me he's coming to show. I heard stories. So yeah, I'm not giving you the Hesped now, but you got it, you know. Can, MS is MS, right? You do good. You got to know about it. Uh, next time, we're going to have an amazing program. It's Shem Manus Friedman's going to come on. If everybody knows, he is Avram Fried's brother, Benny Friedman's father. Tremendous speaker. Obviously, he has about a few thousand lectures on YouTube and all over the place. He's going to talk about a little bit about marriage, Shalom Bias. We're taking a little bit different, a little bit more of the comedy of Shalom Bias. It's going to be a very amazing program. And um, everybody join. I think it'll be very helpful for everybody. And uh, again, tonight's share is all recorded. It's going to be up on tomorrow on Coach Menachem's website, which is menachembernfeld.com. Any questions, please email coachmenachem at gmail.com. So you want to give an email address so people want to reach out to you? So I actually just posted it in the group. It's zgluck at amudim.org. I will do my best to answer. I cannot promise I will get to it as fast as I would like, especially after these events. Sometimes they come in a lot. But I do want to say, um, depending on the feedback, you know, it was an honor to be here. And I would be more than pleased to do this again sometime. You know, that's uh, you guys... One sec. Again, tonight's share number 28. Any of any, the pre-recorded stream, if you want to you know, listen to it, you can go to Menachem's website. It'll be on YouTube. You can call in the number 732-924-8464. Again, a special thank you to all the advertising sponsors, Lakewood Scoop, Chazak, Rabbi Yaniv, and Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer for JCN. Coach Menachem. Yeah. Let's give some closing remarks. Thank you, Reb Tzvi. Thank you, Reb Usha. So like you said before, it's tonight we had a lot of awareness and that was the goal. Um, we weren't discussing um, how therapy helps and what the therapy is going to do. That's a different posture. But really what we're looking for is, like I mentioned, that we just need to be a little bit more aware of what's going on. And like everything funnels down to Tzvi, but everybody, uh, other people could say, you know, let's hope for the best. And I think it did help for me and uh, Asher. This, we spent the past Shabbos by the Shabbaton of uh, Kesher Nafshi, which... It's amazing to see how the parents are actually doing the work, which is very hard when you're up to that stage. But if we can be aware and be proactive to, um, to see, to, to know what's going on and to try to do whatever you can. And again, it's bringing out the awareness and the, the courage to have those open talks with your kids or spouses or whoever you have to or to actually take, take that phone and make that call if you need it. Um, uh, and I think a lot of people were a little scared when the question came in about fully recover. We're not looking for fully recover. We're looking like, like Rapsi said, looking to live and thrive. And if you went through certain things, it's it, again, it's a journey and you gotta do what you gotta do to thrive. And I just wanna mention there's somebody reached out to me that he actually went through all of this and took the Kleifis and he, he made a blog. It's, if you can go, it's, called, it's neversurrenderblog.com. And there's a lot of physic over there. And basically for those who do need it, for those who are in therapy, those who are working hard, uh, will they be able to recover fully? That's not what we're looking for. 
it's, it's hard work, but you, we could continue um, no matter what happens. So again, that's neversurrenderblog.com. And Hashem should give everybody koyach and uh, be aware, do what you have to do. And in Hashem, we should be able to be proactive and prevent so that the numbers go down in Hashem, so the schools can stay open. Sweeps, <laughs> leave, leave the island with, with chizik and the remarks. So we, I'll say say like, we want to put you out of business. That's the goal. So, so I, I'm going to read a message that I sent to my entire staff this week. And I'm going to read it straight off exactly as I did it, because at the end of the day, this is what it's about. Okay. So I'd like to share. Uh, let's play, I got too many messages from you guys. A client came to us two years ago. I want to share some good news. This client was from a very abusive environment, major trauma, case was very intense, involved a lot of legal issues, cross-border kidnapping attempts, facilities, raising money, all around a really, really tough case. Well, she just called to say thank you for she's getting engaged tonight. And in her words, I would be dead tonight if not for my case manager at Amudim. This is why we do what we do. Baruch Hashem, even though it's not that often that we, you know, we're the guys like we're the firefighters. The fire goes out, everybody forgets about you until there's another fire. But Baruch Hashem, there is hope out there. And we see it every single day. People are reaching out. We're hearing it. We're seeing, you know, families getting back together, children doing better, getting healthier, you know, getting sober, staying sober, getting proper trauma treatment, being able to get through it. There is hope. You know, very often my speaks, my speeches, my presentations are doom and gloom. It's not what it's meant to be. Yes, I do share the sad reality of what's going on, but I, I would have to say if not for seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and seeing people truly get the proper help and see them be able to thrive and to do better, there is no chance that we would be able to do this either. So I want to say a big, big thank you to Coach Menachem Atashi for helping with this awareness. And I am sure based on the private messages that I've been getting and comments on all different screens that I'm trying to ignore and just focus on this, uh, that there will be at least, at least one person will have had their life changed tonight. And that's probably me. So I want to say thank you. God bless you guys. Ashrecha for what you're doing. Keep up the amazing work. Keep spreading awareness in all the different topics. And may you be benched with only that all that is good, as well as everybody else that's here. I'm sorry for keeping you guys on for so long. And uh, you know, let's party again right, sometime. Everybody, see you next week. Same time, same place. Zag is up. Thank you.